Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital and general media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to be talking about digital first events. What are they? What are they not? Um, we've got a great panel here to discuss that in the second hour. So if you've got questions about uh, general production uh, and, uh, and AV and management and process, then the first hour is, is for you. If you're uh, interested in digital first events and you have questions about those, go ahead and throw those into the second hour questions. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitchell, what do we have? Thank you, Alex. First one in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. Is there a QR code generator app that allows you to input the Wi-Fi credentials and push it out as a QR code for displays to allow people to automatically connect to your network? Go ahead, Javier. Not sure about a third-party app, but the easiest way is using the native shortcuts app in, in iOS or Mac. If you go to the gallery, there's uh, in accessibility shortcuts, there's one called QR Your Wi-Fi. And if you download that, when you press it, you will get the Wi-Fi that you're connected, but you can change it if you want. Then it's going to ask for the password, and then it's going to show the QR and the buttons to share it. That's great. Liberty? I can't hear you, Liberty. It's Friday and my <laughs> mic is not open because it's not Monday. My yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, QR generator is one that you can use. And I was just curious, and I'll go in the comments with that. Um, it's whatever you put behind the the QR information that you share. So it's there's not a specific one needed for, for Wi-Fi information. Good, Courtney. Well, if you have an Android phone uh, like this one, there's a... When you go to your settings, you just say generate QR code. It'll generate a QR code. Just take a screen grab of that and put it on the monitors around the uh, around the place, and it will connect them to your Wi-Fi. Make sure you're connected to your Wi-Fi first and then hit that button. Generally, uh, just make sure that you're not using online QR code tools. Um, use, use ones that are offline, whether it's PC or Mac. Uh, they can put you in a bad position where you're paying a subscription for a QR code and, and there's no way it will stop working and you've already published it or printed it or put it somewhere and you have no choice after that. So um, definitely use a computer-based one unless you really know that you're only going to use that QR code digitally and you're only going to use it once for a show. Um, at that point, you can use whatever you'd like. And some, there are tracking tools and the online tools that are kind of cool. Um, but you're better off building your own QR code and building how you're going to track it separately on your own as opposed to using the services. They're a bit of a, um, a bad deal. Uh, next question. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada, Alexander asked, I'm trying to cut back on subscriptions. As much as I like Luminaire, I'm looking for a good alternative DMX app, Mac OS, that is well-maintained and a one-time purchase or possibly free. Rarely change settings and mostly turn fixtures on or off. Go ahead, John. So <clears throat> I went down this pathway last summer and looked at Lightkey for the Mac. It's the best DMX controller on the Macintosh side. They have a free version, but it only allows for 24 channels on the free version. So if you're just turning things on and off, that might that might do it for you. Light key. Is that light L-I-T-E or L-I-G-H-T? L-I-G-H-T-K-E-Y. Yeah. Light key. And uh, that's great. And other thing to think about is if you're not changing them very often and you're not getting, you're just moving them around is whether you can just use a hardware DMX controller, um, you know, rather than a, than a computer-based one. And sometimes that's just set and forget uh, if you're not really getting aggressive about it. Uh, next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York, asking, Morning, guys. What are your top three best budget-friendly security cameras that you would recommend for corporate setups? Go ahead, Chris. 
Um, <clears throat> budget friendly. Uh, recently, I oh wow, I'm totally out of focus. I'm sorry. Here, I'll sit like that. Um, I recently started um, taking care of my mother. Uh, not a corporate situation, by the way. Um, and I wanted to put some security cameras around her house. And uh, I'm using Eufy, E-U-F-Y, I believe. And the nice thing about them over something like Nest is uh, you can buy it for, and they're cheap, they're like 40 bucks or something like that. And you can actually use it and monitor it for free. There's multiple apps that you can use either on your phone or desktop. Um, I also pay 10 bucks. Um, I, I, I upgraded my iCloud account to have something better. I can't remember what it was. And as long as you put these little chips in, in the camera, you can back access like 10 days worth of data and, um, works quite well and super cheap. Go Jeffrey. It really depends on which corporate setup you're talking about. I was going to suggest the Eufy as well, uh, because I have the Eufy hub, which now can, uh, 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 give you up to 16 terabytes worth of storage on that thing. And the best part about hubs as opposed to indiv individual Wi-Fi, like uh, WISE or something like that, is that they go towards a hub rather than the main router. That way your router is not overtaxed by all these video security cameras that are going. In a corporate setting, however, I would highly suggest uh, using something that's wired, that's, uh, that goes to a server that that is going to be recording. And yeah, you can have cloud control, but it needs to have a lot of different... Uh, a lot of security to it because the you know you have consumer and then you have you have corporate and you don't want somebody breaking into your corporate uh, feeds at all and there's a couple brands that I'd have to look up to to really give you an option but those are not going to be budget friendly. Good, Courtney. Yeah, Wise has a nice setup. They're all Wi-Fi based, and I would suggest using just setting up in a corporate situation, set up a separate access point strictly for handling all the Wise cameras and keep them off the main network, have it connect, it can bridge it to the internet uh, for uploading to the cloud. But all of them also record locally on the uh, micro SD cards like uh, the ones that uh, was shown earlier by Mr. Fenwick. I go ahead, Guy. Yeah, it depends on the shots that you want to pick up. So we have an older system that has PTZ cameras with a 20x reach, and we can take control of those even remotely and and get some. I mean, I could read a, a sheet of paper from across our warehouse that's a good hundred feet away. So it's it's pretty amazing when you have the right tech to be able to get the shot that you want. So it's a matter of how many cameras do you want to add. Uh, we also have something with the Unify setup where. Uh, on the dream machine you could put in a, another hard drive specifically for a, a dvr uh, and to supplement our system we started using um after we had somebody who, who spray painted some graffiti in our building we we're trying to find the exact spot because we had cars going by and the motion sensor uh, the, the motion activated uh, part of our original dvr wasn't very sophisticated so it, it just recorded every time that a car drove by whereas the wise stuff as you can see here this is our our setup uh you can actually go into events and you can go into the filters. So like if I want to see, see previous day, where was there a person? Now it sorts just by person. So the intelligent stuff with the computer vision is getting very sophisticated. So I'd, I'd suggest even looking at things that do computer vision. So you could see if it's a pad, a vehicle, a package. Uh, so you can have different things trigger like motion and sound. So WISE is, is worth looking at or to having a, a dual system. Next question. 
Next question from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, Canada. Is there any benefit to using the HyperDeck High live streaming preset for 1080p YouTube streams? Why is this an option on the A10 Mini lineup? Go ahead, Jesse. The live stream quality settings isn't a misnomer, but it is incomplete. It's not only your live stream settings, but it's also the settings for your um, recording when you record your edit uh, directly to an SSD. And for that reason, we always leave it at HyperDeck High because we want the highest quality recording on the SSD that we can get of the edit as we did it. Go ahead, Grant. Uh, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Although um, if you are live streaming, then you wouldn't want to set it to the HyperDeck. It's going to do, um, you know, 20 or 30 megabit or something that it'll that'll be pushing it out um if you are live streaming to youtube then do the the streaming high and that'll be about six meg um and then you'll be comfortable there and then you'll need to set up another recording somewhere else um to get a high res recording next question Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart, Germany, asking, anyone going to ISE, the Integrated Systems Europe conference this year? You know, it's funny, there's an ISE in the United States, too, which is information technology um, in Kansas, I think. <laughs> so so I, was, I was researching that until someone posted an Integrated Systems Europe. So I think for this panel, I don't, I don't know how many of us are going. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. And again, with some of these, I'd love to have, think about ways that we can um, informally uh, cover some of these where someone's, you know, showing stuff. We're going to be talking about CES next week uh, with a handful of people that were there. It'd be great for us to have some folks go shoot some video, possibly make it a second hour, um, either during the event or after the event. So, um, so let's, uh, let's figure out ways we can kind of uh, not, not turn it into a huge production, but uh, do, do something that kind of covers that. Uh, next question. Philip Tesoro in Brisbane, Australia, asking, is there a general consensus to the best alternative to LastPass? I haven't joined a live joined alive in a while, so please excuse if this question has been asked recently. I've also been trying to search for an answer to the Office Hours Discord, but unsuccessful. I'll go ahead, Grant. Uh, yeah, so I've I'm a LastPass user for many years, um, and I'm I'm trying to work out whether I'm going to make a jump or not. Uh, the thing that I'm looking at is is just to use the iCloud keychain um, because I, I, the thing that was slowing me down on that is um, a Chrome being able to do all the stuff that I do with LastPass in Chrome. Um, but there is an iCloud keychain extension for Chrome. Um, and that's the next thing that I'm going to play around with to see before I jump. Um, I really listened to Steve Gibson um, on Security Now, and they've been, he's been talking about it off and on and off and on. And I've, I was I was waiting and now he's finally, you know, recommending that people move away from LastPass. And so that's what I'm going to do. Javier? I've been a one password user for a long time. I really, really like it. It's multi-platform, it's very simple to use and very reliable. And it has very good capabilities to share. Like you have different vaults and you can have different people have access to those vaults and you can share like temporary uh, like access. So for like complex things, I use one uh, password. Uh, but as Grant said, I'm also starting to use a lot of the uh, keychain for like more personnel. Like I don't need to have other people access or send them access or whatever. But like the best replacement, like direct replacement, would be one password. Yeah, I I um 
have used LastPass for the last decade, and I'm probably moving past it. <laughs> so, but I, uh, but it, it was a lot of it was when we started using it. It was because I could send somebody access to a web page or a password without giving them the password. So I could say these people have access to this, and it would automatically fill it in, but not show them what it was. And that was very useful in the environment that I was in. I realize I don't have that anymore. It's mostly just managing my passwords, and. Um, and it's really cumbersome still to use it on iOS devices, you know, where you're having apps open up and you want to put it in where the keychain is a lot more uh, convenient. My problem has been exactly what Grant was talking about, which was dealing with Chrome. And now that Grant has said that you can have a Chrome extension, I'm probably, I'm probably out the door. So, um, you know, it, it just takes time to get all those things set up. So what I'm leaving, I'm leaving password, LastPass open for a little while longer, but I did change the password. By the way, everybody who has LastPass to change the password to a long phrase from your childhood that no one will know. That's the, that's the way, you know, that's probably 20 to 30 characters. Um, anyway, so, um, so I've changed that. Um, but, uh, but I think that, um, it is, uh, it's important to to move past that. I think. I, I think LastPass is. I mean, they only had one job, only one job. Next question. Next question from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herden of Germany. The background in an insert studio can be done with a big display, eighty five inches, or with a green screen and a professional keyer like the Blackmagic Design Ultimate. What are the pros and cons, and what would you choose for best picture quality? Go ahead, Chris. Alex will give you a bunch of math on this because he's a lot smarter than me. But what I'll tell you is that if you are going to go for the monitor uh, setup, there's two things you want to look at. Uh, color temperature. You want to make sure that your foreground light is lit at the same color temperature as the monitor. Some, some monitors allow you to change the color temperature that they um, uh, display at. The other thing that um, you'll notice on occasion shooting a monitor, which is my preference, by the way, it, uh, is um, the dot pitch can cause a more. Um, when the lines on your shirt are too close for TV, that's a more. Uh, a more pattern on the back wall on the monitor. And sometimes you can solve that by uh, kicking up the light level, uh, which will cause you to change your aperture, and that will change how much that background is in focus. Therefore, making the dot pitch go a little out of focus and therefore getting rid of your moray. Good guy. Yeah, it depends on your framing and how big you want to be because 85 inches and then if you want a nice little bit of a, a blur and you push that thing back, all of a sudden you're catching the edge of that. And the other thing to watch out for is reflections when using a, a TV. You're sitting there fighting it because of your lighting. Uh, but once you get it dialed in, it, it's, a, it's a nice solution. But the other, the other way to go would be to... Uh, uh, just use a green screen. So for our one button studio, we're using the the new Ultimate uh, 12. So that is looking really tight. So if you haven't seen the results on uh, Blackmagic's uh, site, go scroll through and look at some of the results because that was a $30,000, key or now you can pick them up for a grand. So I would definitely be looking at the uh, the Ultimate solution. Good, Courtney. As long as you're never going to go wider than just a headshot or head and shoulder shot, I'd go with the monitor because, as Chris said, once you set it up, then you don't have any actual uh, hardware to mess with. You don't have to adjust your key, etc. Just get the lighting. I would light with daylight balanced lights because most monitors are, as Chris said, balanced for daylight. Uh, and that way you don't have to adjust the color balance on the monitor. Just go with it the way it is and light with uh, 6,000 Kelvin lights and uh, keep the lights out of the reflections of the monitor, angle the monitor down slightly to avoid that. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
Yeah, I agree with Courtney. Uh, the only problem with a uh, big screen behind you is if you're pushing in and out of the shot, and then you're going to have to deal with more uh, occasionally than not, and then occasionally, depending on where you are in the pitch uh, density that's on the uh, the pixels on there. That new Blackmagic Design Ultimate is awesome. And I uh, highly recommend it. It makes great pictures, and it, like you said earlier, it's very tight. Good, Bill. You said insert studio, so I'm going to presume you have plenty of distance between your camera and the back wall. If you don't, and I ran into a circumstance where a corporate client wanted me to put a little insert studio, and I only had about 10 feet between um, the two walls that I was working with. In that case, there's no room to light a green screen properly and get out the geometry right. So I would go with an emissive display there. But other than that, yeah, I mean, with the price change in the Ultimat, um, I'm I'm tempted down. I'm, all insert studios that I've worked on up until now have been primarily uh, monitors. 85-inch monitors have been what we've used in the past. A lot of it is because of um, the amount of space that we have to work with. Um, as said before, if I had less than three feet between the, the subject and the back screen, I probably would, would use a monitor. Uh, if I have more three or four feet um, to the back of the screen, um, I'd be tempted to to look at a green screen now because it has gotten much less expensive to to do it than the black magic stuff. Now, what I would recommend if you're going to do black magic is that you move to 4K, you use the 4K keyer, and then you scale it down to 1080p. You're going to get the effective 4444, and you'll have um, a, a higher resolution in hair. The big thing is, is that can you get the hair? And, and if you're going to do green screen, if you're not going to do it perfectly, then just use a monitor. <laughs> and, and perfectly means that your your waveform, when you look at the waveform monitor, is going straight across at 70%. It is not a little bit. It's not bent. It's not turned. Um, we'll talk about green screen for these kinds of things in the past. But unless it's perfect, I would use a monitor. Um, uh, and if, But you can make it perfect at that size. And um, it's going to give you more flexibility. But but you have to get it just right or it's not worth it because you lose start losing hair detail. Most people don't notice it, but it'll feel artificial, and you know it undermines the uh, quality of the of the experience for the viewer. Um, next question: Dave Burks from Alexandria, Virginia, is asking. I'm considering changing my ISP from cable to T-Mobile home internet. The app shows I'll have an excellent signal, but do you foresee issues with Zoom quality using a wireless provider? And is it the equivalent of connecting to Zoom over Wi-Fi? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, it's a, you know, we just have this thing about Wi-Fi of all, all types, and you're just moving the Wi-Fi a little bit back further. But uh, anything that uses an over-the-air signal is prone to some type of interference. So we would prefer you not do that. Go with Sky. The, the challenge is how far away is your T-Mobile antenna, a signal, you know, the, the cable, the, the antennas that are sitting up there, sending out that signal. I have used a T-Mobile hotspot for a uh, broadcast of a show because that was the only way we could get down inside of the uh, the area there in the Seattle. Consequently, it worked for us because we were getting at least consistently 10 up and 10 down. Now that's really stretching a show at 10 up and 10 down, but it can work. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, be careful because uh, it may work great when they put it in, but if it becomes popular in your area, it can become congestion, congested, and then you're sharing that little backbone that that one transmitter site is using for everybody. So uh, you could run into problems if everybody's streaming YouTube at the time. Next question. 
Ari Block from Tel Aviv, Israel, asking, I've got a Korg Nano Control 2 control surface and would like to use it to control master volume on Windows or specifically VLC. How can this be done? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, and the Nano Control is, is a great little device. I've had it for many years, but it's always worked better on Mac than it did Windows. Uh, 2019 somebody actually created a small little program it control it doesn't control vlc per se but in windows where you can separate the audio it will control it that way it's on github i put that into meccano uh give that a try and see if that works otherwise their gamers are now asking for this type of control so there are a few other boxes out there that you can get to do that and i think the stream deck will also give you that control with the with the dials next question Douglas Carmichael asking, has anyone used a DisplayLink dock with an Apple Silicon Mac? What have your experience have been with it? And does the data compression in the DisplayLink standard negatively affect performance, especially at higher resolutions like 4K 60 frames? Code Grant. Yeah, I've used a base uh, uh, Mac Mini, uh, M1 Mac Mini, and ran four DisplayLink um displays off of it and it worked quite well um there's always a little bit buggy um which is why i'm moving to um to doing it with uh, black magic sdi um but it has worked it has worked okay i i would be concerned about going to 4k um over the usb bus it would need to be usb c um whereas at 1080 it, it can run over usb a um and so it's a lot of bandwidth that it's pushing through the usb bus um and i I doubt whether that will perform very well. Um, so ideally you move. It's the other thing I do is I have a, a, a Mac studio that can run, and I'm running five screens off of that properly, natively, and that's the better way to do it. Next question. Fred Eric Eckert from Bad Herdenham, Germany, asking, Scarhoy, with their Blue, Bill, Blue Pill and Reactor software, looks like the pro version of Stream Deck and Companion. Is anyone using Scarhoy in production? Can we please have Casper Scarhoy in a second hour? Go ahead, Mitchell. The buttons that Scarhoy is using on their uh, devices are fantastic. I mean, from everything that I can see, they're large, they're quiet, they do have LEDs in them, and you can push them on all four corners and get a different reaction uh, from the switch. So I would say, yes, it is a pro version of uh, Stream Deck. It is a bit pricey. And Casper is very passionate about his gear and love to have him on the show. We would love to have Casper on. So if someone knows Casper, I've interacted with them a little bit in the early days of, of, of Scarhoy, and, and they worked with us to build custom solutions, um, you know, as well as some of their hard, we've used a lot of their hardware, and then we've used their their shading, their switchers, their their um, um, their camera control, like their RCPs. So we've used a lot of stuff from Scarhoy, and they're great. They make great videos as well, and we'd love to have Casper on. So if someone knows him, um, feel free to invite him. We'll put him in whenever, whenever it makes sense for him. Um, he's a he's a great uh, great host. Um, but I would highly recommend it. Um, the they're a lot more expensive than the Stream Deck, so you can start to see what happens when you start putting production-level things in. One of the things that I that I looked at, I just got some, probably what prompted this question, is I, I, as I just got an email about some of their new strips. They don't look like the kind of thing that you would set on your desk. It looks like a 1U control unit, but maybe there are some that I missed. Um, but they do have scribble strips across the top, so instead of having, instead of putting the buttons, you know, putting pictures under the buttons, it looks like what I saw there, at least the ones that I looked at, where they had little scribbles uh, over top of the button so that you could you could name it there. So it's a little bit different, probably not quite as compact, um, but definitely feels like it's pro level. And they've been doing 
tons of integration with um, with you know hardware for a long time. I do not think they will have the level of integration that Companion and Central Control have um, because they're not dealing with as much events. They're mostly dealing with broadcast and video switchers. So there's a lot of hardware that we like to control that I don't think is going to be controllable through what they're doing. Um, but I think it would be, um, be it, it's great hardware if it does what you need it to do. Mitchell? And the only thing I can't confirm is whether the buttons are noisier or they clickety-click yeah. because we can't hear over the internet. We'll have to see what we can do. Next question. Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart, Germany, asking, has anyone played with the new Panasonic camera yet? Looks very intriguing. Go ahead, Sky. I, I have not had my hands on this. I was looking at the website. I just know that what's I've the, trusted. What's the new, what, what, it, by the way, it'd be good for put product names in because I don't know what, I don't know which. Well, I don't, what, which I don't either, but on the website, they've got four new Lumix cameras that, that I'm assuming that might be what he's discussing. I just, my history with Lumix is since the GH2, I, what I appreciate is that they took the broadcast knowledge of video production and put it into this tiny little form factor called, you know, the DSLR versus making a still camera turn into a video camera. They, they really said, no, this is a video camera in a small form factor. So that would be my experience plus the battery life and the durability other than the little tiny HDMI. And that's always been a horrible, horrible design. But again, my history with Lumix has been good. So uh, I'd be very intrigued to see what this is doing. Good guy. Yeah, I was hoping at CES to see the new UE160, which is a replacement for the UE150 and has the direct drive motors. Uh, we'll have to wait until we uh, attend uh, NAB to probably catch that one. The one that they did have at the show that was announced uh, that morning uh, is the uh, S52, and this was one that I was able to get my hands on at the show and speak with the the rep. It's an exciting camera. The autofocus is as good or better than Sony's, so it has something new called phase, not face, phase detect. And if you use it with these special lenses, these L mount lenses, there's a, a way that they they do something with bending the light to be able to get this autofocus to work uh, amazingly well. Even while somebody's zooming in, you can use these lenses to uh, get uh, proper um, focus throughout the entire range. So it's, it's an exciting camera. So there's the S5 too. And then I think the other one's called the Max and that one adds ProRes. So uh, $200 more, or you can unlock it in this one. So those it are is, exciting. Two, two grand for this camera. And is it a full frame? It is a full frame mirrorless. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. Uh, hopefully we'll get to test it soon. It, it looks like a great camera. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, new BlueFX live production graphics software is now included with all PTZ Optics cameras. This software allows you to invigorate your meetings and live video presentations with visually appealing graphics and useful information. Good stuff. Go ahead, Mitchell. I've used their products uh, for a while. One of the cool things about New Blue is that they make a huge number of templates that you can apply to their software that gives you certain looks. So if you need a quick way to get a lower third or something else going, uh, you can go shop from their very, very extensive uh, library in their uh, their store. So you can have everything from sports to business to whatever. But uh, nice job. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, uh, the I've I've had new blue for a while now, uh, and the newer version actually turns into its own switcher, like its own little OBS. So bringing in the camera view and adding the graphics to it, and then sending that sending that out to a Teams or Zoom is not that difficult to do nowadays. 
And uh, even with the brand new ones that we we saw them at CES, uh, which was surprising that they were they were there. I don't know why, but it was. And uh, they were talking about their 4K cameras. A quick note: the G2s are going to hit end of life in the next six months. They're going to do one more firmware update, and then that's it. But those 4Ks with the auto tracking is great. And then you add the graphics straight to it. It's it's going to be a pretty decent camera for meetings or for live streams. Good guy. Yeah, one of the cool things uh, about New Blue is the uh, ability to set um, keyboard shortcuts for each title. So if you have a, ti- um, a, a graphic that you're going to show all the time, and maybe you're doing worship surfaces and you want this exact um, graphic to pop at a certain time, you can program that as a keyboard shortcut. The other nice thing is if you're using an NDI workflow, like we're using vMix and Wirecast, when you hit that graphic over NDI, it'll actually fire the animation and begin playing. So that's that's something that's unique uh, to New Blue that I haven't seen with with other packages where it actually well MIDI will do it on the Mac, but on the PC, the New Blue stuff is pretty amazing if you are in that workflow. Next question. Douglas Carmichael in for a question asking, I've heard of the M1, M2 MacBook Airs used for live electronic music performance for Ableton Live, etc. Wouldn't the lack of a fan be a real issue when pushing the CPU hard on stage? Go ahead, Grant. Uh, so I've I've got an M2 Air uh, and I've I've been pushing it pretty hard. I, I do some Final Cut exports and I've seen... Um, uh, I've seen what it does uh, when the CP, CPU gets too hot and it starts to throttle down to manage the temperature. I think that for the live sound um, playback, I don't think if, if it was a lot of channels, a lot, a lot of channels, then maybe that would be an issue. But I think for for um, those those M1 and M2s can really handle a lot. Um, I think it would be totally fine. But if that would be a problem, you could um, upgrade it to... Uh, the Pro, and then it does have a fan in it, and away it goes. And remember that Apple, you can do uh, returns, particularly around uh, the holiday season, they do a really long return policy. Um, that's a good time to play around with um, Apple gear and just take it back. You go, Jeffrey. Yeah, I got an M2 right behind me, and my, I have two keyboards right here that are, are set up. When I, I go down to my drum set, I'll I'll set it up with keyboards and drums because I've been doing some uh, one-person band just little fun things. Uh, I have not yet to push it. I suppose in the summer, it's going to be a, a little bit different of a story than the winter, but uh, I always keep it close to uh, anything metal, like a, like a music stand to help uh, dissipate the heat if, if there is any extra heat that's coming out of it. Next question. Greg Gibson from Washington, D.C. Greg asked, what hardware do you recommend for replacing long SDI cable runs with fiber cable? got a few options. Um, the most typical one out of a sat truck, if you, if you have a sat truck show up and they're running satellite, they're probably going to use a telecast rattler. Um, these are very, very small little pieces that go on the end of your SD, S, uh, SDI or fiber and, and convert back to SDI. Uh, other ones that I've used in the past, most of what we've used have been Lynx yellow bricks um, have been what we've used for most of our transport. Uh, they're just super solid, and <laughs> super reliable. Um, we also use a lot of the Blackmagic uh, fiber to SDI converters. Um, and we've in, in, the, in most recently, that's what we've been primarily using for the stuff that we've been doing in the stage or the, or the, or the uh, Blackmagic ones. Um, depending on what you're what you're putting into them, remember that the SFPs um, are the uh, are the thing that you have to add to it, and you got to decide which ones you want. A lot of times, we end up with SFPs that are that are LC. Um, my preference, 
is my strong preference is generally ST. Um, I find that ST uh, termination is the easiest to work with. It's, it feels the most like SDI. It doesn't feel like it's going to pop out, or, or and it feels a little more protected. Um, but those are, you know, you can. There's a lot of different, um, a lot of different versions of termination. And one thing you want to do is get a box with all the converters from LC to ST to SC to ST. You know, all the back and forths, so that you can always get to any box that you might end up with. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, it depends on what each side is. Um, some of the cameras, like Blackmagic cameras, have the the ability to, built in where you can just add the SFP module. And uh, I know that you, Greg Gibson, because we sold him a couple of the Blackmagic cameras. So on that side, you're good. And then on the other side, you can either have uh, uh, an AJA uh, box like a, a FIDO. So this is what one of those boxes looks like. This is a transceiver that will do uh, optical in. Uh, and optical out, SDI in, SDI out. So if you don't want something that's just a, a, a portable type unit, there are some rack mount units from people like Fieldcast. Uh, the Blackmagic ones are super inexpensive now. I, I think they're around 165 bucks. When we first started getting into this, it was you know at the $800 range. And so it's it's really affordable now. And the, the fiber's gotten more uh, robust as far as... Uh, uh, f finding vendors that don't have just really thick ones that because that's the other thing is you got to be careful about people especially in hotels running them over your fiber with carts so you want to be able to uh, get uh, a long run that's it's bendable uh, flexible because in the olden days we were stuck between like variable cable which was inflexible or stuff that was uh, very very thin and uh, once you ran it over with a cart there goes a thousand bucks so that, that there's a lot of options now, whereas before it was uh, not a lot of options. So it's a good way to go. So you can eliminate uh, those SDI cables. Yeah. And, and um, think about you're looking for tactical. So tactical, you know, so usually you see TAC4, TAC8, TAC12. We tend to work in TAC12. So we use TAC12s most of the time, and that's going to be 12 strands of fiber. So that can be two-way connections to up to six cameras. Um, and we might run a primary and backup into two different routes to, to deal with people running over our cables. Um, but the TAC-12 also gives you some headroom. So even if you only need four of those strands or six of those strands, um, it, it's nice. We don't try to run fiber to every camera typically. So if we're running a ma master control somewhere, we'll take the fiber and run it to a central location where we have a breakout box. And we have a breakout box with all the convenience panels on the front that convert all to SDI. So we don't have a lot of little um, drop-down boxes laying, laying around the, the, the venue. Then we go SDI from that breakout box out to the things that we need to, to get to. Um, and we find that to be useful. We use this not only for our video, but also for our Dante network, um, control networks, um, you know, all the different things that we're going in and out of. Um, we bring it all in in fiber. What's nice is you can now build a control room that's 600 feet away or, or 800 feet away into, you know, it, it only has a couple cables. <laughs> it doesn't have this huge pile of cables that are trying to get into the room. You have a couple cables that get to the room and then everything breaks out from there. Uh, next question. Philip Tesoro from Brisbane, Australia, asking for iMag on an indoor event with no outdoor light source or windows. Is there a benefit to using color correction gel of using all tungsten fixtures? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, if you're talking about projection and not an LED wall, yes, uh, you can just drop a half CTO in front of the projector lens and it will warm it up enough to uh, photograph well with your tungsten lights. Uh, and it'll only drop it down about half a stop or so in light output. So uh, make sure you have enough uh, projectors with enough oomph to get through the uh, through the CTO. And uh, it's, it's much better, I think, than going in and adjusting the color balance of each projector. Uh, because it's a known amount that you're going to throw in there and you don't have to match the projectors that way. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
Uh, if you're using a screen, it like a flat panel, it might be a little bit more of a problem to do what Courtney was just suggesting. So I would hope that you'd be able to make some color adjustments on the uh, the TV monitor you're using uh, to adjust it so it's in the same range as a tungsten fixture. Good, Bill. Yeah, my approach would be to bring out some sort of light meter and and read the screen with a projector uh, projecting white and then read the room lights. If the room lights are all tungsten at 3200 Kelvin, if the projector is close to that, I wouldn't mess with it. Just try to keep it all even. But if the projector is putting out white light at 5600 or 7000 or whatever it does, yeah, you definitely want to correct for that. Next question. James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota, asking, an application can do a specific task more perfectly, but an app I have could work. What is the right balance between having more apps or learning the apps I have to do more? Go ahead, Grant. This is a good question for a Sunday because it's quite philosophical, you know. Uh, but uh, I, I think about it in terms of being a tradesperson, you know, that has a trade and they have their tools. And the tools are... Uh, um, a, a super key to your your output um, and your delivery of what you're doing. And so think of it in terms of what is the best tool to do this job. And if it works big, it works small. And often with apps, we think of them as tools, then uh, getting the right app that's going to scale with your business as you do larger and larger jobs, get the right tool once again, comes back to buy once, cry once. Uh, go ahead, Javier. I completely agree with Grant. Uh, I think if apps like t tools, so you have the right tool for the right job. And in the physical world, we have these constraints that you you can't carry like a big knife and an opener. Like that's why Swiss Army tools are, are have been uh, invented and and multi tools. But in the digital world, you don't have that constraint. So I'm up for like getting all that all that you can out of an app. And if you can do ten things, try to do it the ten things. But if you find one that has that solution that quick, steady, and consistent solution just keep it and if it has no subscription it's like a buy once and if it has a subscription then you can figure it out how many times you use it go ahead bill i think it's a it depends on how well you know your apps for example i do all of my voiceover work in final cut why because the the entire sound environment is exactly the same as in logic which is a planetary class audio process they've also built into final cut things like the voiceover module which really helps me when i'm doing voiceovers because it's purpose built for that in that case what's in a general purpose app is every bit as good as a specific app and in some ways better so you make that decision that I can do all this work in a general purpose app. In other cases, you want something that's specific because it does make it easier because it's purpose built for that. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I can think of many programs that uh, have both of those and, and there's always an advantage to having that remote. And mostly it's the remote ability to it. Like for instance, is, uh, we'll talk about a mixer. Uh, you want to get in front of the mixer and and play with the dials. But if you have to go to the other side of the house to hear how the bass is sounding or something like that, then you would want to have the app with at least some functionality uh, to make this, the fine tune. But then you'd have to go back to the console to make the real fine tunes uh, to make the sound and make it sound better. I would say as you get started... Um, you know, basically we choke all the time. If, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. And while you can pound the screws in, you know, um, you usually find that as someone starts to work on a project, if you go to a craftsman, they typically have a lot of tools. You know, they have the tool that does this thing and another tool that does this thing. Can they do it with some other tool? Yes. 
But as you get more refined and you want more control, you'll tend to have more tools that do exactly what they need to do as opposed to kind of what they need to do um, to get more refined in what you're doing. So those, those are the, that'd be kind of the approach. You, you'll start, it's fine, but I think that, and if you're just doing a little bit of it, it's fine. But as you start to really do it, you're going to want a specific tool to get that done. Next question. And it's a question from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Kenny asked, PIX products out for some time, seen adverts for the new PIX 14 camera mount for various sports. Is this a good addition for sports and education? Are different mounts for the various sports listed or one mount for all? Link in chat. Good guy. Yeah, I had to look this one up. Um, at CES, we did see a lot of what we call computer vision. And what that is, is it's a, that ability to detect to players or people or pets or whatever the object is that you train it to see. And it looks like that this one is based on that uh, computer vision, our artificial intelligence uh, algorithm. And it looks like uh, you can add your own camera. So the, the footage that I was looking at at first, I was like unimpressed, but uh, it is doing the, the video analysis and some of the, the videos that they have as examples up. I uh, just looked at this basketball one are pretty neat when you, you think of you add, you know, something with a little bit more of a robust uh, uh, sensor and lensing that as long as you're not overwhelming it. So, so it's just tracking, you know, the folks and it, it looks like that's the uh, the team one that uh, Kenny's referring to. And it looks like that camera's probably a good two pounds. So if you could slap something uh, with a bigger sensor on there. Uh, this looks like a pretty good device, but I'd also be looking at what PTZ Optics is coming out with uh, with their Move 4K. And it's an interesting space, uh, but it can save a lot of time if you don't have to have an operator sitting there all day if you're doing a whole season of these types. And this is just like a alternate shot that you can pick up. So good. it's cool stuff. 1500 bucks, it looks like. Good, Jeffrey? Yeah, this company's actually been around for a long time. I remember actually interviewing them. I got a video somewhere back in 2010, 2011 at CES when they first were looking for initial funding. Uh, the one thing about this is, yeah, you can do multiple cameras, heavy cameras, light cameras, and a lot more on that. And of course, the design has changed since then, so I can't speak on the newer versions, but I'm assuming they've really tightened down what you can do with that. So it, it, it might be worth a good gamble to give it a try and, and, and come back with a review. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, in an article that talks about reasons musicians can use tracks, they say that cold, dry weather increases voice fatigue. What techniques do vocalists use to mitigate vocal fatigue and excessive stress? Go ahead, Jesse. Uh, before every show, uh, a, a trained vocalist will do warm-up exercises. After the show, they will do cool-downs throughout the week. Uh, even when they're not performing on the day, they will be doing warm-up and cool-down exercises, uh, usually with the guidance of uh, of a coach. And I do hope that this article was um, working to normalize an understanding of the fact that at a certain scale, shows require that you make a decision. Either you have an understudy a uh, vocal track that you can dump to if the voice is not doing what it needs to do, or you have an audience that is there for the performance, whether it's perfect or imperfect. Go ahead, Mitchell. I'm not a singer, but I'm a voiceover talent, and it's the same thing. Uh, if you're in a cold, dry environment, you need to moisturize, and you can do that by two, doing one thing first, and that is drink some hot tea with, uh, with honey in it, uh, do the vocalizations that Jesse was mentioning, and um, just prepare 
so that uh, when the time comes that you got to really hit those high notes that uh, you're ready to do it. Funny thing about uh, radio people is you always see them walking down the hall getting ready to do a voiceover by going... <coughs> <coughs> kind of uh, affect uh, most people in the radio business. It's a bad habit. It's not good for your vocal cords. <laughs> like we do it, but it's, it's, you shouldn't do that. You should neigh like a horse. And that is the, that is the key to making that work good, Bill. Don't stop practicing. If you're going to do this for a living, do it every single day, uh, unless you start feeling some stress and then you can back off. But it's just like an athlete. If you want to perform high in a hundred yard dash, you have to run and run and run and run and run every single day getting up to that because it's about muscles. It's about muscle memory. It's about instinct. So do it a lot. Don't go off for a month and come back to your microphone and expect to knock your first voiceover out of the park. When Bill, when Bill said, when he said, don't stop, I was waiting for Fleetwood Mac. I, he said, don't <laughs> stop. And I was like, stop about tomorrow. Rehearsing. Anyways, right. yeah, don't like, stop like, rehearsing. <laughs> Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, helps us out here with a question. How do you determine and measure the correct voltage, amperage, and wattage for charging different iPhones, Android phones, tablets, and laptops? Good, Courtney. Well, I don't measure it. I buy the things that uh, tell you what amperage that they have. Uh, typically, if you have a, like a brick like this that's powered off of AC and can provide uh, multiple USB-A, it will tell you uh, if it supports fast charging, which is the higher amperage, two amps at five volts. Uh, the rest of them usually will be uh, one amp at five volts. So anything that requires fast charging, sometimes it'll show on the device itself, it'll say the top two ports are for two amps and the rest are for one amp. Uh, as far as charging laptops, I would not. I would use the uh, power supply that comes with a laptop rather than using any kind of brick, uh, especially if it uses USB-C because there can be so many different changes and it can suck a lot of power or a little power. It depends on the laptop manufacturer and all of the uh, phones that have uh, charging controllers built into the battery, so you don't have to worry about uh, providing it with enough voltage. It'll take all that it needs as long as the power supply can provide it. So make sure your power supply is hefty enough to provide the two amps or the high-speed charging for tablets, which would be uh, a little higher voltage, which is, I think, uh, 9 volts. Next question. Steve Uroff from Madison, Wisconsin asks, can a Stream Deck interact with the Insta360 link controller so that buttons can jump to save position presets? Not yet. <laughs> it's something we need to do some requests around. It's, it is, uh, the, the Insta360 link uh, is the, our favorite webcam. The problem with it right now is that it is a, uh, it doesn't have an API. Now, the rest of Insta360's line has an API, so we feel like there, somewhere in the future there could be an API, but discussions that we've had with them, they seem to not be thinking about that. So hopefully we can get them to think about that. <laughs> so um, it is currently, there's not a lot of external uh, control over the link. Um, and I think that, I don't know, if, even though they built it, I don't think that they thought that some of us were gonna buy three or four of them, uh, which I have, um, and uh, and wanna use them in a more robust system. So so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, in this video, they're using a pair of simple laptop stands to lift the Yamaha Mod X6 keyboard atop a desk. Should I use a pair of laptop stands or should I use a proper desktop keyboard stand? Go, Jeffrey. You know, I, I was looking through a few of their videos just to see this laptop stand that he's talking about, but uh, there's no angle that I can see where it is. What I can tell you is that desk is 
is a pretty high-end desk. It's got multiple tiers to it. It's got uh, it's got places for your monitor. I'm 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 wondering if it's actually meant for keyboards and doing a workstation like that. That keyboard is probably tied down. And in fact, in fact, there are some uh, there. Are, it's an XR uh, Vesa mount for a keyboard. You can actually screw them into the mount so they can stay right there without having that little lip because uh, a laptop stand if you have that lip there and you're hitting the keys that you your fingers could start hitting onto that little lip there so my guess is he's got those tied down uh screwed down uh, and that keyboard's not going to move next question chris widener from lafayette indiana asking mevo is introducing a pro subscription model for their software has anybody tried it and have you um, and if you have what do you think i don't have a lot of Every time I open up a Mevo, it breaks. <laughs> I don't know whether it's something about my personality. We don't get along. I don't know what it is, but for uh, maybe, I don't know if it has been a whole decade, but it's been, it feels like it's been pretty close to a decade. Uh, I open up these, um, I open up a Mevo and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work. Uh, or if it does work, it doesn't work very well. So, you know, I just have very little experience with using it in production because it just has been buggy. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. I love Mevo for the NDI ability, but it's getting to the the Mevo start. It's getting to that point where NDI is just not going to work anymore on that. As for this, uh, they put out an app a couple months ago where you can pair your Mevo starts with with iPhones to make a multi-section uh, there. So I haven't heard about this uh, doing any type of subscription model, but it makes sense in the long run. Next question. From Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C., asking, an article said plugging power cables of SDI equipment in while the SDI cables are connected could send a charge down the SDI cables and destroy the SDI connectors. How do you power cycle a video switcher without disconnecting all the SDI cables? Good guy. There was a white paper that was put out by Aerie regarding some of the cameras with the SDI output getting fried if um, the power was not turned on in a certain order. I'll put a link to the chat to this um, white paper, but basically you can you can read right here. It says uh, the SDI outputs can uh, get damaged when an accessory is connected to the SDI output and is powered through an unshielded cable. So I don't think that you're going to have an issue with your Blackmagic stuff. I've been using the Blackmagic stuff for years off, hooking it on, no no problems whatsoever. I think it's just those cameras with the outputs. So it's, it's kind of a, a myth uh, for switchers and not only for cameras, not for and specific branded of cameras that didn't protect that. Specifically, Ari. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Thanks, Mark. Now you tell us. Uh, typically, it's not going to happen. You're not going to follow that procedure. Most people are just going to uh, uh, flip the switch and cycle it. And pulling all the cables out of like a 64K uh, router? Come on. <laughs> That's going to be outrageous. Yeah, we we have lost SDI signal, SDI outs, and SDI primarily SDI outs of cameras, and we've never really connected it to the potential that it was some kind of voltage um, issue. So there there's an outside chance that it, it you know there's a chance of it happening. I think that what that's what Aries underlining is is that there's a chance of this happening. It's probably pretty expensive with an Aries camera to fix it, so they want to tell you that you know you probably shouldn't do that. Um, and so, but I think as Guy said, and, and as Mitchell said, I don't, I think that you're talking about unconnecting the cameras in a certain thing, in a certain um, way, not necessarily unconnecting the, and I'd be curious, is it unconnecting or connecting? Because typically what we'd worry about is connecting the camera when it was powered, um, not unconnecting the camera when it's powered. Um, but, um, but I think that they're trying to, I think that's a, 
covering their butt, <laughs> you know, like, you know, of, of putting something out. Uh, I, again, we have lost outputs from cameras and it could be potentially connected to something like this, but no one ever does it. I mean, I, I've never seen anybody worry about whether they were powering, when they were powering up and powering off their, their cameras. Would it, would it kill the array to put protection on their SDI inputs and outputs? But, but I'm saying we've lost it. We've lost some on Blackmagic cameras, on other cameras. So what they may be referring to is there is a potential I would guess the potential is probably has to do more when they talk about unshielded and so on and so forth, more of a static problem than a, you know, than the actual. Um, so I think that it's carrying voltage. I don't think it's the SDI voltage that's the problem, I think. And again, if, I think if you're using high quality cables, you would have less problem with that. Uh, next question. From Nick Bat in the UK, dedicated 5G mobile data router or use an Android phone to share over Ethernet adapter. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, as much hardwire as you can ever get is my high recommendation, especially if you're doing video. Uh, if you you can also take an Android and yeah, hardwire it into a 5G router, and that's even better than just a well, not even better, but it's better than just having oh, everything over the air. You're going to lose packets. Yeah, I would get 100% get a 5G dedicated mobile day, um, router. And there's a couple of them that you can do a lot of. You, you have uh, additional options for antennas, additional options for the number of, of SIMs that you're using. So there's a lot of different options that you can use there. I wouldn't use a phone unless I had to. You know, so it's you, you can definitely, if you're going to get dedicated hardware, I would highly, highly recommend it. Uh, and also, if you're coming to the U.S. based on questions you had in the past... Um, the remember that the there's a lot of data rules. And so, for instance, your data may be one cost if you're using it on your phone. If the phone is used as a hotspot, that data can either get cut off or charged. Uh, you can get charged a lot of money for something that would be sim simply streaming or uploading. So um, take that into account as well and check the fine print. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas asking, um, how would you equip a worker on a job with a second or third camera and sound so you could interact with them while they're working without encumbering them unnecessarily? You know, I think that I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about video production. And a lot of times what we've um, done to extend somebody who's on, on the ground is to build a VPN connection to their system, have the system be completely remote controllable and allow us to do everything from controlling the PTZs to controlling the, um, you know, to lighting, everything. We can do all of those things from the kit. So to get people, you know, if you don't, if you can't, was, we've had issues where it's an issue of security. It's an issue, issue of availability and we send kits out that we can control. Um, and then you can have a larger uh, group somewhere else managing those. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, what cost-effective 6 to 8U racks would you recommend for a small home studio? I'd want to be able to move it easily, but I wouldn't want it moved constantly. Would the SKB i-Series be a good choice? Go ahead, Mitchell. I uh, haven't had a chance to look over the, uh, the i-Series, but in general, uh, the low-boy type uh, rack units uh, are very functional. Uh, Mid-Atlantic makes them as bunch of specialty manufacturers. In fact, some of them are made to be soundproof. They have a cover over them so that you can open it up, put your devices in there, and still be properly vented. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Sky. And Douglas, as you're evolving your studio, I would recommend looking into used equipment and finding people that are upgrading and updating, and they might be able to, you know, save you a few bucks on something that as you're evolving your, your space into a studio. Yeah, one of the things we, we do like to use a lot is the SKB. If we're, if we're going to move 
uh, relatively often is the SKKB um, open, the I series being the open racks. These are the racks that go into the cases. Um, and the, we get a lot of ventilation, obviously, because they're, they're there. Also, we can put them into a case and, and ship them relatively easily, and they're still protected. Um, I tend, we tend not to have a ton of closed racks um, if you're not, if you don't need to, um, because it really gives you an opportunity. But you can, if you're not going to move them very much, if you're going, if you think you're going to be moving them around, having those cases is great. If you think you're really set up, you can get something a lot less expensive that doesn't need to ship. Um, next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks subscriptions in general. How do you keep track of them all and get rid of them when you're not using them? Almost all my subscriptions go through my Apple um, my Apple subscriptions. Uh, I don't. I have very very few other ones, and the reason for that is that I can easily see them all. And I can easily turn them all on and off, and it's probably the biggest reason that I'm so anti breaking up the app store is because I don't want to manage my subscriptions in 80 different places. And I've, I've gotten to the point now where this year, I'll probably, by the end of the year, I'll probably have gotten rid of almost any subscription, including Netflix, that um, requires me to log in out externally. Now, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Alex. Uh, the other problem is that some companies actually make it hard for you to uh, uh, to cancel because they're hoping to get another one or two months out of you uh, in order to make that happen. Um, I just saw a commercial on TV. It's called Rocket Money, and apparently you can manage all of your subscriptions via this bank uh, application that they have. So that would be kind of a cool thing to have them all aggregated in one spot. Mint is also a good one. Uh, go ahead, Chris. I've noticed uh, recently when I pay off my credit card uh, using my phone app, there's multiple, you have to go, yep, I want to pay it. Are you sure? Yep, confirm. Yep. And it's like, I really think that they want me to miss a payment. So along mm -hmm. the lines of things that are difficult to remove yourself from, it's just another way to make a little money by adding one more button at the bottom. Like You have to scroll and go, oh, there it is. Yes, it's nuts. Yeah. Uh, next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany, asking, I recently recognized in my font management software named Font Explorer X Pro by Monotype has been discontinued. They say something about a magic future product, but that's it. What does the panel use to manage all the fonts on your Macs? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, it's built in. It's called Fontbook. Works fine. It's not like the old days of suitcase and all the other uh, myriad of uh, programs and problems out there. So let Apple do the job. Yeah, I have to admit, on a Mac, um, I typically just use the built-in tools to, to make that happen. Uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace is back again from Austin, Texas. Paul asks, does the iPhone 14 need a lens protector with a case that doesn't provide this? What are the different lenses? Go, Bill. There's three lenses on the that series. Uh, in fact, I happen to have a 12 Pro and a 14 Pro in my hand here. And you will notice one thing. The reason this is an important question is look at how big that now telephoto. The, the, the irony is that we're talking about cameras and your your screen is black. Oh, there we oh go. no, oh, that's there we terrible. Go. I had a shot pulled up for it. And <laughs> just to not, show you that, not it's not there. Oh, darn. Okay, so I'll just do it up here. Uh, you can see if I can get this close enough. The amount that the telephoto camera sticks out on the 12 plus oh, on the 14 plus which is there is significantly more these really do stick up out of the camera a good little bit so i think cases are a good thing and in fact the cases that i have you will notice that around that that lighter case there is a much bigger ridge for protection of those cameras i'm taking my cue from the manufacturer of the cases saying that's a little bit risky how far they stick out so i think a case is a really good idea that with the newer cameras 
and I have broken the lens. I've, I've been able to, th- I've been able to drop a uh, camera, uh, my iPhone, not in the 14, but in the 13 or 12. I dropped one of the 12s uh, in just the right way to crack one of the lenses. <laughs> so, so you could, so I, so I no longer had uh, the wide, wide. <laughs> you know, so it was, uh, so it, it is possible to, uh, to do that. All right. We are changing subjects and talking about uh, digital first events. Uh, you know, this has been something I, I was listening uh, last week. Um, uh, I was listening to us talking about uh, digital first events. And we were kind of stumbling through that that answer. And um, also I'm speaking about it um, at the, uh, there's a an event I think I put out um, the uh, invitation yesterday uh, to our list, or maybe I, maybe I'm going to, uh, but I was speaking on the 26th um, uh, about uh, digital first events, and so uh, it's it's something that a lot of us are thinking about, something that a lot of us are talking about. Now, if the panelists want to say anything before we open to the questions, uh, go ahead and put your your um, uh, your hand up here. Um, but a couple things I wanted to make sure that we distinguish because I think it's important. I think that a lot of times we folded digital first, and people want to fold digital first and hybrids together and they are not. Hybrid is the poorly designed rickety bridge to the future and digital first is the future. <laughs> so so we want us to separate, you know, where we're going. They both look like you're going the same direction, but hybrids are not digital first events. Um, hybrids, uh, generally, I will tell you that as someone who's done hybrid events for over a decade, um, they are a they are possibly the worst event that you can possibly do. And the reason I'll, I'll tell you that is because what we watched over many years, and this is why I talk about it a lot, is it burns up your mailing list. So it burns up all your contact lists because you tell people they can go to an event without having to show up. And when they show up, they're not excited about it. And you do that two or three times and they stop coming to all of your events, <laughs> you know, because you know, your, your trust, you know, arrives on, on foot and leaves on horseback, you know? And so you spent all that time building up a contact list with a lot of your potential clients and you, and you then burn it up really, really, really fast. <laughs> you know? And the problem is with hybrid events is that you are, uh, the problem that you, you get into is that you're putting everybody on the back of the room. So you're putting, and it's not just the, you know, if you think about a large event, it's the, in, in the, the overflow rooms in the um, multi, you know, viewing parties, all those things. Everyone's in the back of the room because there's people in the room. The speakers are always going to look at the people. They're going to look at the people that are in the room with them. You're fighting a million years of, of you can tell them whatever you want to tell them, but you're fighting a million years of evolution. They're going to look at, if there's a person it's in the room, it is a hybrid event. <laughs> like a person, one person in the audience, it's a hybrid event. Um, we've spent years after, as we learned this to get, to box the speakers in. So we put stuff around them so they can't even see the crew so that they're really focused on um, the monitors that they have in front of us. Um, and I think that, you know, folks like Blue have been really, I'm really glad that Blue and, and Grant are here because they, they've been um, kind of in the cutting edge of this of this process. But the, the big thing that makes a digital first event a digital first event and not a hybrid event is simply one small change. And that is that the speakers are no longer in the room with the audience. Otherwise, they look exactly the same. You still have dinners, you still have lunches, you still have expos, you still have all the things that you would have when you were there. Now, there's a lot of things you can expand on a digital first event, like making the expo more photographable, uh, making sure that people have those things. But there's no reason to change anything else. When you when you separate the speaker from the audience, and remember, on a large event like a Dreamforce, everyone's looking at monitors anyway. <laughs> They're looking at the IMAX screens because they can't see the stage. So why you know why do we care about whether there <laughs> whether there's a little person way off in the distance? standing on that stage. Um, 
when you do that, you're, it gives you a bunch of options. Number one is you're no longer dealing with all the all of the complexity that you would normally have with trying to integrate an online audience with the onstage audience. So you don't have open mics with open speakers. You don't have to figure out how you're gonna how one speaker is gonna look at those speakers. There, all those things get out of the way. You're able to put monitors in front of the speakers so that the speakers are able to now um, interact directly you know, with everyone and look straight at them and not be trying to, you know, we can't do that in a physical environment because you'd have 10 monitors sitting in front of the, uh, in front of the speaker. But now the speaker can have that. And when the speaker is talking directly to the room, they're talking directly to the online audience. They're talking directly to every overflow, every, you know, their every, their eye contact with everyone. Everyone now has a front row seat. And that's the thing you want to understand is that digital first means that everybody has a front row seat. Uh, hybrid means that almost nobody has a front row seat, <laughs> like including the people in the audience. Um, and so, but now you're able to bring speakers in remotely. You're able to connect them all together. You, it's a simpler, it's actually a simpler AV pipeline um, than what you had before. Um, and it still gives you the, the reason we talk about digital first as opposed to digital events. Digital events are what we're doing here. We all got together. There is no stage. You know, it is a, that's a digital event. The digital first event says we still want to get together, have drinks, eat dinner go to expos, walk around, um, visit the whatever location it is. But we want to make sure that the digital, the digital audience still has a first class experience as opposed to a um, luggage experience, you know, um, which is what they get in a hybrid event. So, so that's what we want to, you know, to kind of talk through and answer questions. But it's super important because if you're doing hybrid events, you're hoping that people are going, hybrid events are done by event companies that hope that it's all going to go back to where it was. And hope is not a strategy. You know, like it is not going back. We are not going backwards. And the companies that do digital first and digital events are going to be the future. And if you're not getting good at them, you are, you know, going to be part of the pavement, you know, in the next, you know, three to five years. And so it's really, really important for our group to be really understanding this and trying to figure out how we're going to move uh, that forward. Go ahead, Grant. I, yeah, I was just going to say that in the in the be before times, you know, bef before, before COVID, times, yeah. Uh, when, when yeah, when we when if someone said to me, oh, you know, we want to get a whole bunch of people together online and and kind of um, have a panel discussion, how many people do you think you could have? I mean, I'm almost ashamed to say. I'd be saying maybe six, five or six in Skype. You know, it was kind of the thing that I was thinking. And and yet, then we then we jumped into COVID. We start messing around with Zoom, and I think we really started pushing the boundaries on it of it, and starting to see seven by seven grids. You know, fifty people, um, and and this sort of thing really changed. It, I think it pushed at least digital events, digital events, five years into the future. And gave people an experience that they hadn't had before. And the thing that's happening for me now in Australia is that we're still doing a whole bunch of those of those digital events, and then there's a couple of of these events that are trying to do hybrid or they're trying to to uh, still do in person. And I sit in these in person events, and I just think this would be so much better as a digital event, or at least. Uh, even better as a digital first event. Um, and I, I appreciate your distinction there, um, Alex, and being able to say that, sure, get people together. Um, don't have them all travel to one location in in a country. They can go to multiple locations, still hang out, still have the, the times at the bar, go play golf together or whatever. But when they come, um, they're experiencing it in the same way 
that someone could be at home um, and by themselves. And so that's the type of stuff that uh, I'm getting really excited about with different venues that we're looking at that can be for our speakers and 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 uh, and being able to experience um, large gallery views and things like that where they can see the audience. Um, and that kind of goes to the point of someone asking about the difference with um, live streaming an event um, versus a, a digital event. We'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah, and, and I think that it is, to, to your point, you know, the, the big thing is, is that the digital first events, when we, you know, as they start to ramp up, are infinitely scalable. Um, you want to add another viewing party and in London or in Cape Town or in Manila, you're adding a room with a screen, you know, and if you want them to have a two-way communication, a little camera on the top, but otherwise you're, you, you're not trying, you know, you're able to add them and they are going to feel when the speaker is talking to them like they're being talked to directly. They're not going to feel like they're in a little watch party way off in the distance and, and they feel much more connected. And it's much easier for us to, to figure out how we're going to talk to them than figuring out, okay, now how are we going to do the two-way and is there going to be echo and is there going to be all these other things that are going to happen? As a hybrid event, that gets more and more complicated. And I, and, and I don't speak as someone who didn't do any hybrid events. I've done hundreds and hundreds of hybrid events. I've spent millions of client dollars on, on trying to figure that, trying to crack this. So it's, it's, it's a decade. It's not a COVID thing that I figured out that I don't think that this is going to work. It's, I thought it would work. And I spent so much money trying to figure it out. And I can tell you that if you think that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and hybrid is it, it's a train. You know, like it is not, the, it is not sunlight. <laughs> Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to have these discussions because I think the problem here is the public perception of what this exactly is that we're talking about. And we're talking about it, which is important. I had a, uh, a fine dinner last night with a friend of mine that owns a large uh, statewide magazine, and uh, they do a lot of events. And my point about uh, talking about digital first and other things was that didn't quite understand uh, what I was trying to get across to him. And I think I made a connection because in Delaware, we have a long state separated by about 100 miles. And I said, well, this is a way that we can involve the people from the lower part of the state in something that's going on in the upper part of the state. If they can't travel to it because of the weather or circumstances, this is a way to bring them all together. And um, I think I got close. And the other part is I told him to be watching right now. Rob, I hope you're watching. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeffrey. Here's the biggest problem that I find with uh, digital first events, and it really depends on the fund, of course. But if you got a little small, you're starting out type event, it, the promotion is going to be the key. Because if you're not promoting, promoting, promoting up to the event, a lot of people will forget what the event is and when it happens. There's been many digital events that I just completely glossed over and forgot that uh, it was happening at like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or anything like that because of the fact that, you know, there, there's no tactile feel to it. And you lose that tactile feel by going to an event. And even with a hybrid event, yeah, that's that's true too. Now, the only thing that I will say, the, the what I like to do when I help with a digital event is make sure that we not only have some live uh, content, but also a lot of recorded content so the speakers can be in the room to answer questions as the event's going on. I find that that works the best in, in situations that I've worked in for and, a digital events. So. Right. And I want to distinguish that I want to really 
distinguish this. We, we will have another discussion about digital events, um, but I want to distinguish this is digital first events. So this is the interaction between a live audience and a, you know, so you have a live audience somewhere and you also have an online audience and pot potentially multiple live audiences. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. The digital, the digital events have their own challenges, but we'll get into that in the, in the not too distant future. Go ahead, Liberty. Um, as we've been sitting here and just like prepping for this, I was thinking through like a lot of what has been said in this acronym, MI, M-I-E. So the mindset that you have going into the event, the intentionality of even the planning of the event and the experience. So you're thinking about how long would people be sitting down, like really mapping out from a, taking it from a marketing's perspective, like the customer journey. So you're mapping that out with great detail. And it's kind of been said already that digital first, or or I think I'm going ahead to like a question I saw later on of just the difference between like when people think of virtual and virtual having such a, a, a poor connotation, but like digital first is really about the experience that you are providing for the audience and how it's about your approach and just really making sure, like I've seen some amazing digital first, you know that they were intentional with like the kind of host that they had, the interactivity between between breaks and, and the transitions and, and really top-notch production um, to make sure that the right. audience gets and as much as possible. And I'll keep on coming back to like if a, if the if there's a stage, it's a hybrid event. <laughs> like like if there's a, if there if someone's sitting on a stage, it's a hybrid event, um, and it can be a, a relatively good hybrid event, but it's part of the past. You know, like it is not gonna we're not gonna keep going down that path. Those 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 events are gonna get run over um, by by these because these are much more scalable. What what you're gonna see are venues that build around digital first events. Um, you know, and you're gonna see them tied in with fiber, and they're gonna be set up, and they're gonna you know, and and the thing is is that. By, you know, that, you know, we, but I want to make sure that we keep distinguishing that if there's a stage that someone's speaking physically to an audience, it's a hybrid event. Um, a digital first event is even speaking taking, to a, uh, a virtual audience that you if, still consider that a hybrid. No, if they're only talking, if they're, I mean, if they're in a studio talking to a, only a, a, a virtual. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if they're only talking, that's a, and if there's nobody, what I would argue is if there's no physical audience anywhere, that's a digital event. If there is an audience that is a physical audience that's been brought together in some way, we would consider that a digital first event, which is that we're paying attention to that digital audience. But you're absolutely right. Liberty is the digital events and the digital events will be the largest events. Like we are in a transition to, you know, if we kept on shooting video of stage plays, television would have never taken off. Like it would have never gotten until we got to a point where we were paying attention only to the viewer and we didn't. And, and if, if there was an audience there, they were there for filler. Um, but if you, you know, if we look at it, we started, that's how film started. We started shooting stage plays and look, we can film a stage play. And that was really boring, you know, and, and then we started moving the cameras around and we started doing other things, but we can't move those. We can't start changing those camera angles and doing all the things we did with film while we're still trying to shoot that, that, um, that stage play, you know? And, and so, uh, but as we break away from that, you know, and I and I always keep on thinking about contact, you know, the the movie contact where Jodie Foster's in the little she's in the in the transport and she's just sh she's just shaking really, really hard until the chair that wasn't part of the design shears off from the from the thing and everything's now quiet. And as we go into digital events and digital first events, what makes them so what makes hybrids so hard is this attempt to be talking to two different 
audiences at the same time and not doing either one very effectively. Go ahead, Blue. Yeah. Um, so first off, love, love, love this topic. Um, and it's one that's really important for us as service providers, um, because to Mitchell's point, um, I think the biggest challenge that we are going to experience with digital first events is the client's willingness to experiment. Right. And um, COVID gave us as an industry, um, I'm going to say a gift. And I recognize that there was a human thing that is not at all a gift, but just from an industry perspective, it gave us the gift of being able to, as Grant said, push virtual events five years into the future. And I actually think it pushed digital events actually just into reality. I don't think it pushed it into the future. I think if we didn't have the gift of COVID, virtual events may never have happened because the people producing events and the people hosting events were stuck in a rut for thousands of years. So what's another five going to do? Right. I think we may have never gotten to the point where we are now, which is where digital events have an experience both tactile and in reality better from an experience perspective. Whereas an attendee, I can, there are so many things that are better about virtual and digital um, from an attendee's perspective than being in person. And then if we can figure out as an industry how to get our clients to take a risk, right, and try, what they will perceive as a risk, we know as an industry that it's not. But if we can get our clients to take a risk with having a digital first event, I think they will start to see massive amounts of growth. They'll still have an in-person audience. I actually think the in-person audience will continue to get smaller. Um, but the people who want to have that in-person experience, that bar experience, that restaurant experience, the stuff that has nothing to do with the event itself will have it. And those that want to experience the event but don't want to get on a plane, don't want to stay in a hotel, don't want to get into an Uber, don't want to have crappy room service, um, they'll be able to have their experience the way they want it. Um, and it really is the best of both worlds. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And I think that one of the reasons I think it's so important to understand digital events or digital first events and digital events, and I've stopped, you'll notice that at the beginning of the show, I don't say virtual anymore because I've stopped using the word virtual because like webinar, I believe that it's been so misused that I got to stop saying it, you know, just, just, you know, stop using both webinar and virtual because I just can't you know, can't get over the stigma that people have stuck on it over the last two or three years. It, it was perfectly fine before that. Um, but I will say that um, it's important for us to really understand why those things are the case when we're talking to clients. And again, it's it's going to be something we're seeing a handful of them. I think again, I think Blue and Grant are probably on the front edge of of what of these you know really building the infrastructure to do this. But as we start to build that infrastructure and that starts to show up, when you see multiple studios like like what um, like Blue Studio, where you see the uh, multiple studios like that all over the world. Now you can build events that you're bringing speakers in, still bringing them in and still potentially having physical environments around them um, and having them have that support. Um, but, but now having a much larger canvas to work on, you know, you know, we're no longer, you know, we oftentimes say we're no longer constrained by time and space, you know, and we can be building these very large spaces, but still giving people the opportunity because people do want to get together. They do want to meet with each other. They do want to talk and have drinks and have lunch and do all the things that they're doing there, except now they can do it in 10 cities at one time. And there's not one city that is the primary one and 10 and nine that are, you know, watch parties with cookies. Um, you know, you can have them all be um, on the, in the front row all at the same time. Um, and I think that that, and for event companies, what they have to realize is that these make, 
the, the irony of all of this is event companies are trying to hang on to what they know in the past when the future is way bigger. Like the few, this is a perfect example of someone hanging on to something where if you're like, hey, if you just start talking to your clients about digital first and suddenly everybody's having a great experience in 10 cities, that is a really big event. You know, that's different kinds of comm structures and you've got lighting and setup and build in all these different locations. Um, it's, and it, you know, the, and the pressure, the downward pressure on hybrid events and, and, and physical events, to be honest, are, is very, very high. You're going to have an increasing attention to carbon impact. You're going to have um, an increasing, you know, it, the next recession or the next uh, pandemic will be the nail in the coffin. You know, like it, it will just, it will just push all this in because the, what's happening at the same time that wasn't happening before COVID is the billions of dollars that, that teams, the teams, uh, Zoom, Blue Jeans, all these folks are spending on making their products better for this future. Um, and so that is, you know, so you have a huge amount of money doing that. You have 30 to 50% of the population that doesn't want to go to these anymore. You have, you know, there's just an incredible, you know, carbon, all these things are pushing it down. And the problem with hybrid is you put anybody in that, in that audience, you put the, you put someone on stage and one person in the audience in a chair and everyone else that's not in that room will feel like they're in the back row. So, you know, we want to keep on thinking about digital first is front row experience for everyone digital uh you know hybrids are back row for most <laughs> for most of the audience and arguably even the audience that's in the room because you're if i'm on one side of a very large stage of 5000 people i'm looking at one part of the audience if i'm in, on a the led wall i'm looking at all of the audience all at the same time and giving a much more uh you know eye to eye contact all right let's go ahead and go into the first question First one in from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Um, what have you seen working in other shows that you've adopted into your production? Go ahead, Sky. My first digital first experience was with Madeline Smithberg that had 30 years in broadcast television. So she very much brought that history of broadcast responsibility for its audience's sake to that digital first experience. Consequently, I really started thinking about my history in theater, my history in broadcast TV, my history in, in film. And those, those structures are what I'm bringing to all of my, my communications with clients because they are now a part of creating an event or a show for an audience. And I think that's where uh, if I've adopted anything, it's communication with who's going to be participating with me in an event that they are now a part of a long heritage of performers, of of stage, of theater, of even uh, I was listening to the editor for Larry David, the uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and they talk about while it feels spontaneous, Larry David absolutely writes a script for that show. Now, every scene may have seven different takes and it's up to the editor to determine what is the best take of that scene, even though it was spontaneous, but it's still kept within story structure. So I want to collaborate with my clients that there's going to be a beginning, there's going to be a middle, and there's definitely going to be an end. And, and what are those three components? Now, all the variables that happen in the middle, that's where the fun is. Go ahead, Grant. Yeah, so um, been fortunate enough to uh, watch and be a part of some of Tony Robbins' events. Um, and one of the things that I saw really early on uh, was when kind of this open open mic or, or picking someone random um, that had raised their hand and wanted to ask a question. Um, and that's normally something that that I think that um, 
now that we have question management systems of putting in text questions, that it's something that we can try to avoid because you really don't know what's going to happen there. But what I saw, particularly in that coaching model, um, is a really intimate moment um, that ha- that often happens um, between, um, a, you know, like a, a speaker and and an attendee sitting in their house. And, and that interaction um, was magnetic because everyone that was, is engaging in that event has that same level of access. And that feels different than when you're in some big stadium and you know you've got to walk down to a microphone or something and maybe it'll happen. Whereas in the way that you see someone engaging the way that we are, um, it's... It, that type of uh, content is is magnetic and engaging and so trying you know i'm trying to implement that into some of the medical education events here in australia and and seeing people bring up a case study that they have that they're dealing with an issue that they're dealing with right now and having not only panelists but also other attendees being able to weigh in um that that conversation that happens then um is electric yeah, and I, I think that you know some of those things that that I've that we did a little of, but I think that that actually Blue does better than than we did, and I learned a lot from it. Um, which was sending swag. <laughs> sending swag is a really great, you know, like when Blue talked about some of that. In the, this is in the very early days because you you have someone who's already knows events, but sending gift boxes to everyone, they're going to pay for being there, and that's going to be covered. And but part of that that what they're getting is something that really makes them feel like they all have something the same. Um, and we started doing that with sending things out to speakers or participants and so on and so forth. And it makes, I, I was surprised at how much of a difference it made uh, having them feel like they were really part of something. So I think that, that that's one of the things um, that that I think makes a difference. Uh, finding ways that you're going to have the audience interact. One of the things that that we've done, and I, I won't get into the story, but we've done a couple where we have what we call kinetic interactions from the online audience, which is that the online audience can make the, something happen on stage. It is like a nuclear reaction that we don't know how to contain yet. So every time we've done it, we've done it three or four times. And the reason we don't do it all the time is because the audience gets so energetic that our systems have broken every single time um, that we've turned this on. And because they get so excited about if they can get something to happen on stage or they can get a light to happen, in our case, a flamethrower at one one time, which actually broke a Facebook (laughs) event. Um, And all these things are are things that we know are going to work in the future. We literally just don't have a containment field for them yet. And so that's why we know that there's a lot of potential that's sitting, still sitting out in front of us. Um, definitely interacting with the audience. The thing that we do here every day um, is that we, uh, I don't know how much more we need than Q&A, to be honest. Like I, when I talk to, when I talk to our partners, I, you know, Every single time I tell, say you should be talking for five, 10, maybe 15 minutes about a subject, and then you should just switch over to Q&A um, because it's going to move, keep people moving forward. And it's really hard to get people to think that way because they think I'm going to talk for 50 minutes and open it for 10. That wasn't even interesting when we were in the room. Like, you know, for the most part, you know, non-Q&A, we were checking our email, we were texting, we were tweeting, we were figuring out what we're going to have for lunch, talking to who's, who, who are we going out to drinks, how do you get into this party? That's what we were doing during those, those sessions when someone's droning on in front of us. Um, it, somehow we felt like it was going to get better in the virtual world. Go ahead, Liberty. 
What I heard from from Grant, which it was kind of like this light bulb um, for, as a descriptor, is really the intimacy that can happen with digital first events. Um, and as you shared, like the kinetic side of things, yes to, and in responding to this question now, yes to the swag, um, digital swag at a, like very valuable digital swag, not just, okay, this coupon, but I've gotten licenses and seen like that kind of stuff gets your audience excited, but also knowing like who your audience is, if that um, makes sense. And always sending out food. We've done that a lot of time. Like if it's some kind of um, session or event where it's over a meal time or something that really will bring the, the community get together, food is always great. Well, one thing to your to your point is uh, we one of the things we did on a couple of different events was um, wine tastings and wine and cheese and wine tastings. And what we did was we sent everybody, you know, like the little bottle, you know, from one of the wineries. We're in Northern California, so there's a lot of wineries. Um, and so we would send them the little bottles, and then they would, we would also send the cheese. But then we would take them virtually to the winery and take them virtually to where the cheese was being made and people could ask questions while they're eating it and they're talking they're talking through it and i looked at that and we did it as part of a bigger um uh, event i was like i could do this all day <laughs> it's like people are having so much fun they're asking questions and they're learning and they're everything else so when you when you think of it and this was about you know adwords or whatever but it was but the uh, but that piece people were it was electric you know and so there's and and it's not something we could have done in a physical world and we want to keep on looking at these things where how do i tie those things in you know to to the rest of the world you know, you can be exploring all over the world when you stop getting yourself too tied into the physical one uh, go ahead um, blue yeah, um, I uh, one of the things that we did from a um, cocktail perspective um, in swag boxes, um, one of the swag boxes that we sent out a while ago, we included a little carry-on cocktail kit. Those things that um, you can buy to take on the airplane that actually make the bad alcohol that you get on an airplane into a good cocktail and had a cocktail evening where everybody had an old-fashioned kit and you could, you know, do something similar to what you just talked about, Alex, um, with a, a bottle of wine, but we did it um, on the cocktail side of things, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then in terms of creating interactivity, um, I think that's one of actually the key things that separates, um, and I think this may actually be a question down down the road, but this is one of the key things that separates an event from a from a live stream. Right? Whether it's digital first or digital or virtual or just live event, right? one of the key things that for me in our, um, separates that from just a, a live stream, which I consider a one-way broadcast, is that interactivity. Um, you know, one of the things that we have on on our event dashboards, our event websites, are these emoji things. And they're, you know, little happy faces or whatever you want them to be, really. They're just images that attendees can click. And what we've done, similar to your flamethrower, uh, just without the flame, um, is they then an emoji rep that represents that button click floats up our LED wall right behind us. So as we are talking, and we usually put different emotions, right? Happy, laugh, um, probably don't put cry, but you know, just use some emojis that people are used to using, except maybe the dirty ones. And um, allow attendees to let us know how they're feeling by clicking those things. And, you know, as a host on stage, when you kind of look around and you see, you know, a wall of fire going up, uh, going up, you know, that you just said something that landed um, and it works really, really nicely. Um, and we've managed to do it without breaking things. 
we can talk about that a little bit if you want. <laughs> well, these are, and ours have been mostly public events that have an, an almost unscalable number of viewers. And that's when you start to get flow that is, is hard to uh, hard to manage. Well, I'll give you just as, as a super high level, um, we put a limit on the emojis, right? They're like, if, if right. you know, for events that we're doing that are like 20, 30,000 people, which is not quite unlimited, but it's still quite a lot, mm -hmm. um, you could wind up with, you know, thousands of emojis on a page and then you just can't see the back wall. Uh, so for us, what, what we generally do is we just ignore a certain number of them, right? Once you get right. over a certain number, you know, everybody's happy. So we just kind of discard the extras. Yeah. And, and you just want to hear that also 30,000, you know, 30,000 people and, and imagine what 30,000 takes to put uh, into a into a building, the amount of infrastructure, you're picking the space a year ahead of time, you are uh, doing walkthroughs, you're figuring out, you know, the union uh, rules, you're figuring out the load in, you're figuring out the electrical, the permits, the everything, or you're doing a virtual event, you know, so, or, or a digital event. So yeah, um, right. we, could do things, a, we could do a virtual event for 30,000 people next week. Yeah. And, and the, if you wanted to. <laughs> and the big thing is, is that, again, what I think is going to happen with Digital First, and I think Blue touched on this a little bit, is that we're going to see the number of people in the room get smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, what we found over the last 10 years is 300 is, a, is this really sweet spot of it's big enough to be really fun and um, small enough to be feel really personal. So we think that, that that is going to be a place that we coalesce around um, in the kind of the 300 person range where they pay a lot more money and they're there and it's, there's a lot of creature comforts. And then the rest of the audience, um, you know, the, it, we find that the, the ROI drops off pretty quickly after that. Um, next question. And Scott Mueller chimes in from Germantown, New York, asking, I hear virtual used as a bad word. Even though the event was only virtual, I still got something out of it. It carries the connotation of not real or less than. What new word can replace it by that means better than in real life? Go ahead, uh, Blue. Um, so what we've been doing for the last two, two and a half years is when we market an event, um, that is a, a live event that happens to be virtual. Uh, we don't market it as a virtual live event. We just market it as a live event. Um, and one of the things that we've been trying to get our clients um, to do is stop making a distinction between in-person and virtual because we know based on the type of reaction and responses that we get is that people have as good, if not better, an experience with virtual events than they do with in-person. So why make the distinction? It's a live event. Would you like to attend? Awesome. You can do so from your home. Yeah, and I think that the other thing that has to ha that has you know that hasn't happened yet for most of these uh, digital events is people don't take like here you see probably the almost every day and definitely today you see a an example of what Zoom's capable of that you don't see very much during even the best events where people are coming in with with their laptop camera with their laptop mic with no lighting with all these other things and so so and that that devalues everything that you're doing. And companies that would spend $5 million on a booth won't spend $500 on the, the, the setup for their speakers, <laughs> you know, at these things, which is, is kind of insane, insane, you know? And, uh, and so we have to get over that as well. So one of the things that we really do push when we're doing um, digital events is let's get better lighting, let's get better mics, let's get better, you know, let's make sure that goes that goes better because a lot of times it looks and sounds better when you do that. What we look like here and sound like is actually better than most physical events because uh, we have radio mics and and we're, we're kind of uh, lit, everybody's lit well, you know, rather than on a stage. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of ways that we can do it. And But again, to, to uh, we have to not only 
change how we talk about them, but change how the events occur as well. Now, next question. Yasmin Lee from Singapore asking, how has digital first changed, if at all, now that in-person events are back with a vengeance, and how will the concept evolve in the next five years? Uh, go ahead, Grant. Yeah, so I think it's the transition from digital events to digital first, to the, the idea that people could still come together because the because that's always the pushback, right? It's like, oh, the the option of of where hybrid comes from is oh the the digital event was great, but we want to come together and we want to go to the bar and we want to do all that stuff. Um and and so they think that the whole event has to be done in person the way that it used to be done, rather than this idea that actually you can do the digital um, aspect of it and have all of that working um, and still have some of that that interaction that people want to rub shoulders or whisper to each other or whatever about something that's going on during that session. Mm. Um, more so, like I, I think of a digital first event as even the um, the, the idea that people could meet after they've they've been at home by themselves the idea of doing a meeting at a at a bar or a restaurant after you've you've had your day um to me that's still a digital first event because because now um they interact with the content with each other how all that works and then go off and do the social aspect and then come back like i think i think that is something that uh, we can explore more as well so that the travel is not required and suddenly now you have these meetups that just pop up all around um, the country and the world uh, for people that will meet other people but yet i still think the best the best way for you to engage with um, sometimes content heavy um, events like some of the medical events education events that we do you can't tell me that sitting in a ballroom uh, looking at a at some X-ray or or, or um, uh, some medical imagery on that screen is a better experience than sitting in front of a large monitor on your desk in your office or at home. Um, that's a far better experience for them to be able to see that content and then to be able to hear everyone and for anyone to be able to pop up and the speed at which you can you can move from one person to another with with questions and comments things like that. But as far as what's what's coming, I think more and more of that, where it doesn't require a single place, but but it's um, uh, but being able to to have multiple places that people are still interacting in person, but are doing a whole bunch digitally as well. You go, Sky. I we're being asked to look into a crystal ball, and again, three years ago, would would we have thought we'd be sitting here now? So that's where I, again, what is the audience's experience of this? And as I'm listening to the office hours experience over on mid journey, and they're talking about 3d is just moments away. And consequently that was going to lead to video. So that's where I I'm trying to imagine five years from now, but in the exponential way of people wanting to participate with each other, I, for some reason, I keep thinking of ready player one in the back of my head. So yeah, I, I think that's pretty far away. I mean, digital is pretty far away. I mean, they everyone everyone is wish wishfully thinking that, but there's a weirdness to it that's going to take a long time to get over, and it's going to get weirder before it gets better. 
um, because once you get to the digit, once you get to the kind of uncanny valley, it'll be super weird, and it'll, people will not like it. And that's going to be when five years from now. <laughs> and so, so I think that the virtual world is probably uh, the like virtual, virtual, three uh, D, whatever. It's probably pretty far away. What I would say is r- related to Jas- Jasmine's uh, question is that what's different is that there's been a lot of money spent and there's going to be a lot more money spent on providing the tools to make this a lot better. So, you know, we were barely, you know, working. If Zoom had not existed um, when COVID happened, we would have all gone back to the way we were, I'll argue. I don't think that any of the other platforms were capable of doing that. Um, capable of making it easy to use and, and easy to work with, and it's why Zoom grew so fast, is without that existence, it, the, the other tools were not sufficient to solve the problem or they were too corporate or they were too hard to use, et cetera, or not, and didn't have a grid like this. Like literally none of them had a grid, um, a, a gallery view um, that, that was at the same level. And so the um, so I think that it would have gone back. I uh, I think that right now what's happening is is that there's everyone can see it they can see what's going to happen they can see that we're going to do bigger and bigger events online um and that is going to keep driving it and again people will hang on to it but even ces when you say back with a vengeance ces had uh, a third less maybe a, almost ha- you know close to half as many attendees this year so it, it's a lot better than it, they keep on saying it was better than last year or the year before. So it's the best in three years or best in whatever. But I can remember CES being 160 to 180,000 people. And it, this was 100,000. And that was a wishful number from what I've heard. Like it probably wasn't quite 100,000. So it's not, it, it is a shell of what it used to be. And that's probably one of the biggest ones that you'd want to go to. And we're talking every event. I don't see, I don't, I don't know any event coordinator that I've talked to that says the attendance now is better than it was before COVID. You know, all attendance is down um, because there were 30% of the people that didn't want to go. And now there's tools. And as more of these tools become available, more people are going to want to do it online. But if we don't solve this problem of hybrids being horrible, they're not going to come back to the physical one. It's like I... I used to read a lot of magazines. Then magazines were available on the iPad. Then I went to the iPad and I stopped buying magazines, but then I didn't like that. What did I do? I didn't go back to physical magazines. I just stopped reading magazines. You know, like, And that's what's going to happen is people are going to go to digital because they know they don't want to travel anymore. They're, they've gotten used to that. They're, not, they're just not going to interact anymore you know, in those areas. And so we have to figure out how to solve it. Um, next question. Next question in from Dean Sir in West Lynn, Oregon. I produce a smaller events focused on a rare disease, less than 200 people. We want to bring the remote audience into the room and connect the in-room attendees to the remote folks. In the context of digital events, I'm seeking interactivity and connectivity. Yeah, go ahead, Blue. Um, That sounds very, very uh, sneakily like a hybrid event. Um, you know, one of the things that it sounds like you're trying to do is, is connect two audiences that are having vastly different experiences, which is the core problem with a hybrid event that you, that I don't think is solvable, at least not with the technology that we have today. Um, so if I were you and I was trying to host that event, I would not try and connect the two audiences. I would just keep them separate, treat them as two separate audiences, um, and you'll have a lot more success. 
Yeah. And one of the things that we want to think about also, and this is a bigger picture of, of events in general, is that why did we do events? You know, there's always a story of a family that always cuts the end of the pot roast off and then cooks it separately. And someone asked the grandmother, why did, why do we do it that way? And she said, well, I didn't, my pot wasn't big enough. <laughs> you know, and so, so that was, you know, like, and so the thing is, is that we do, why do we come to events? It's because we didn't have video. So for 5,000 years, we didn't have video. So if you wanted to talk about something, you had to come into the same space. We're kind of past that now, you know, but we're still cutting off the end of that pot roast, you know, and we're, we're saying, we have to bring everybody in. We have to have multiple tracks because people could only be here for three days. So now they have to pick and choose. These events can last a much longer time now. We can be having a, a digital event, can be a digital and a digital first event where you have three months of, of sessions that are going on online that culminate in a physical uh, um, event, digital first event, and then go for another two months. You know, like there's no reason for these to last in this little time with multiple tracks and, and and all these other things because, you know, we're not constrained by that anymore. And so, so I think that that's the other thing is we, you know, you want to think about how you're building them. Um, these, what you're talking about, which is a rare disease spread around the world is a perfect example of something that probably makes sense to be digital <laughs> only as well and potentially a small amount of digital first. Next question. Scott Mueller from Germantown, New York. Scott asked, a digital first event may not mean digital only. Can you best include, activate, and entertain an audience that is on site for an event that is digital first in nature? Yeah, I mean, for the on site experience, you're not changing anything other than the speaker being not in the same room. Like, and the speaker could even be there somewhere else in the building and they're going to be at the dinners, they're going to be at the other things. It just means that that speaker now is, has, has a face-to-face -face conversation with everybody connected to the event, not just the folks that are in the room. Go ahead, Blue. Um, so if you're cool with it, I have some photos. Yeah, from, so this is a little totally. less... I didn't want to put um, you on the spot, but I wanted I, I want you to show the photos. Show the photos. Yeah, so a, li a little less theoretical than, than perhaps um, real. Um, my uh, my business partner and wife and I hosted an event in November um, that I we called a digital first event internally. Um, it was um, it was virtually for about eight hundred people or right around there, and um, on site we had twenty five people at our new our new studio. Our, our new studio has a, a viewing theater or an area that we're calling a viewing theater. Um, that can house up to about 50 people comfortably um, in classroom style chairs. So um, here, just just so you have a visual, um, this is the the viewing theater that we have set up um, in our space. And um, you know the the front is right now it's just a video wall uh, with four with four TVs. Um, let's ignore the problem that undoubtedly you may see coming, which is, that cross is right in the middle, which is right where most people's heads are. So that's being replaced with an LED wall. Um, but um, what winds up happening is your on-site attendees come in and they interact with each other. Uh, both myself and, and my wife um, went out there on a regular basis and interacted with them as the hosts. Um, but we were the majority of the time on our digital stage, um, which has you know large LED backdrop, um, then the audience in the room or on site were watching it. Um, that that was essentially what that's the same experience that you have um, at home. Uh, we also allowed the folks in the room to um, 
to join in Zoom so they could chat both with the virtual audience as well as turn to the left or right and talk to the people who were in the room. Um, but then as the as the host of the event um, went on stage, we were still interacting primarily with the virtual audience. There was no distraction. And when we did interact with the in-person audience, if you look at this photo, the bottom right-hand corner is a camera that was in the viewing theater. So when we did do Q&A, when we did interact with the in-person audience, we interacted with them the exact same way we interacted with the folks who were at home. So there was never a disconnect from an audience perspective or from a host perspective in terms of how we were interacting with the audience, which made it really, really clean. Um, and, and I think really, well, it was it was pretty awesome. Um, and then, of course, um, constantly, we did refer to them. Um, we had a we had a mic in the room, you can kind of see it, you know, front center of uh, to the left of that screen, um, where, you know, if there was audience reaction to things that was happening on stage, if we happened to say something funny or something that induced applause, um, we took that audio track and, and embedded it not only into the studio so we could hear it, but also into the um, the program feed so the folks at home could hear it. Um, and, you know, the, the folks who were there had a good time. Um, and you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, we did do some things just for the on-site attendees. Uh, we had a, you know, special reception the night, the last evening we did, um, a pre-event day that was just for them. Um, but those people also paid about, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you the, our event price was, you know, $97 for the virtual event. Um, and the folks who came on site paid 2,500. So a significant difference in price point and also a significant difference in experience. Um, but for the event itself, like the core event, the core teaching, what everybody paid for, everybody got the same thing. They just got some extra stuff because they were on site. And I just want to point out when you looked at that, when you looked at the speaker looking out at all those monitors, um, whether that's notes, confidence, your slides, the other remote locations of so the watch, quote unquote, watch parties or the in-room. This is a dream for a speaker you know, for me because I get to have all that information in front of me. I'm not trying to figure, look down at the confidence monitors, look over, have people see what's coming up next. All of that stuff is stuff that I have, you know, that I have all sitting in front of me. Uh, go ahead, Grant. Yeah. And I, I was just going to add, uh, being a, re a remote um, attendee of that event. Um, the, to your point before, Alex, about um, feeling like a, a front row or a back row, even with that on-site audience that was cut to sometimes and you could hear them sometimes, you still felt like you felt like you were, they weren't in between. Like they, they weren't in between my experience of that event. Um, they were off to the side, like they're they're just another one experiencing it in the same that in the same way that I was, um, and so it, it didn't feel like I was sitting in the back row, um, and it, it it worked really well, and and um, I look forward to more and more of that, and and I I like that Blue you were saying about that it's a premium experience, and so then it's a that's a different thing, and there could be a whole another thing that's in another another state or another country or whatever as well, so. Yeah, it's exciting. Exactly. And and I think that the other thing is when we have the speakers not in front of it. And we did a lot of we did a lot of multi-city events where we have we've done these in the last decade where we have four speakers in four different cities and the and you're watching virtually, you're watching this the other speakers, but you get one in your own space. And I was like, why are we doing this? Like, why aren't the speakers just well lit somewhere projecting to everyone? 
You can still have someone walk up to a mic. You can still have someone do all the things you did before, except now you can have everyone have that front row experience. And when you look at, again, at what we're doing in office hours, all the speakers, you know, we get head and shoulder. Um, it's well lit. It's well, It sounds good. Um, it's a way better experience for most people um, than they would have even in the real in the in a in an actual event. Um, next question or an actual physical event. Yeah. Next question from Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois, asking, "What is the optimal size of a remote watch party esque venue? Living rooms, fifty seat, two hundred fifty seat." We've done it at all sizes. Um, I think the largest remote venue that we've uh, projected to for events is probably about 2,000 seats, um, and the smallest have been five. And so I think it's really, that's the advantage of a digital first event is that everyone gets that, we're talking straight to you, no matter how big that audience actually is. Now you have to decide, you know, how you're going to sort that out from an audio perspective. Um, but, you know, if they're going to actually talk and, and, and that, so on and so forth, but it can scale up and down relatively easily. Go ahead, Grant. I think layout of the room is really key in that. Um, that that classroom style um, actually sets it up uh, in a way that you're interacting more. So I think um, typical theatre style suggests that it's um, less interactive and and it's more of a of a lean back experience. And so how you set up the room is really important. One of the things that that I'm trying to transition um, with a large uh, annual event that happens with lots of concurrent sessions and things like that is actually just just starting with one room being digital first. So one room throughout the whole event um, is digital first, which means that all of our panelists are all remote, all the, all the speakers are presenting, they're all remote, and we have a room that's dedicated and potentially around that sort of 100, you know, sort of number of people that could come into that room and it feels different because there's not a stage um, and there and there's the potential of more interactivity. It's totally digital first. So that's a that's a small step to taking that whole event digital first. I, yeah, I, it's funny. I that's how I talk to event planners. Is I don't talk to them about, hey, let's take over your whole thing and make a digital first event. I'm like, just give me one room because I know that one room next year will be two rooms, and the third year will be all the rooms because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like the, the sessions don't make any sense to do that. And so I just and because now we can bring speakers in seamlessly from all over. Because one of the problems when you're a speaker, if you're in a panel and you're the virtual one and there's two people in the, you always feel like an outsider as well. Um, you never feel like you're, you're the one take kind of take, unless it's just you and one other person. As soon as there's two or three on the stage, you're kind of being cut out because they can see each other. And when you're virtual, it sounds better. It looks better. Everyone, I can interact seamlessly with them. And again, a lot of the tools that Zoom's building specifically um, is going to make this easier and easier to do. Um, next question. Scott Mueller from Germantown, New York asks, explain the difference between a live stream and a digital first event, and how would you differently approach the content delivery and expectations of a digital first event? I mean, I think that the big thing is, is that a live stream is generally you're just watching something. You're watching something go on. You might be able to put some comments in. The digital first event is really thinking it's a digital event for the digital audience. There are things happening for them. We are interacting with them. We are um, building content for them. And we're not just simply putting cameras in the back or, or creating some kind of 
uh, shoot, one of the things that we've been noticing is, is that you feel more outside of it when you're cutting cameras even. Like what we really have been finding is, is that we like to have the cameras if you have multiple speakers, but a, a lot of times just having that screen and being able to see everybody is what a lot of people actually want is to just feel like they are there. Um, but But the interaction with the audience and the design of how that audience is going to interact, not only with the speakers, but with each other. So these are breakout rooms, these are ac activities and so on and so forth. And, and again, like Blue said, it can be separated so that you're not trying to, how do we have the physical audience and the online audience interact? You can have a little of that, but what you really can do is create a whole set of, of events for the digital audience and a whole set of events for the physical audience and let them that are customized for those audiences to maximize their, their, uh, their experience. Go ahead, Grant. Yeah, I uh, I think of a live stream as as one way. Yes, it could be interactive. Yeah, you know, you could get some some feedback. Um but but when we think about these digital first events, we want to see as many of those people as possible um that are that are attending. And what I've what I've experienced with some of that, um particularly when you can see all those gallery views, things like getting people to stand up and dance, you know, like um it seems a little funny, particularly with someone in their own home by themselves, or, you know, jumping around. But when you see a um, hundred other people doing the same thing, a thousand other people, 30,000 people all doing that, um, it's not just about the, the, the speakers or the talent that are seeing that, but all of the attendees are also seeing other people that are doing it. And that becomes that becomes magnetic and exciting. And so it's not just hypey, you know, jumping up and down. I've also experienced things like meditation sessions and really intimate yoga sessions and things like that that, are, that have been um, really very special. Uh, and so that just, it totally opens it up to a, to a new experience that you would not do in a ballroom. Absolutely. Next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asking, other than asking questions about how, excuse me, how are digital first events truly different from live TV broadcast? Good, Sky. Well, my history is who's going to pay for it and what's the ROI? Because we've got sponsors that come in to get their product in front of that, your audience, and that's that's the sponsorship of a thing. And that's where even with, with Blue, you the people pay to come and be a part of that. So it's that's my question that i would also have with this yeah go ahead liberty the thought around the engagement how's the the person who's watching how are they engaging so you said the example of questions but we've done some where it's like they've done a health fair or a virtual walk or um activities inside so thinking about how that is delivered through a, a virtual experience or a digital i should say experience yeah the the breakout rooms um the potential and interactivity in many many different forms can like you can break out rooms break the audience up and have them have face-to-face -face conversations with each other, have them have face-to-face -face conversations with some of the speakers where the speakers are dropping into those breakout rooms um, to have those, those experiences. And so the breakout rooms, I think, are a really important part of that event where people can actually feel that there's other people on the other side as well as um, having these larger plenaries. Now, one thing we also want to think about is whether the plenary idea, the idea that I'm gonna, we're going to talk for an hour and have people listen really makes any sense. You know, like it wasn't that good when it was in the room. And, you know, when we watch Apple doing what they're doing, it's much more compelling just to watch a video because, and, and what we're finding over and over and over again 
Is the videos coming ahead of time so that we can have a Q&A is the way to do this. Is, you know, let people, because people can listen to it fast or they can rewind it. And even if only a small percentage of the people uh, actually watch the videos, it massively changes um, it massively changes the conversation because there's enough people asking pertinent questions related to that. Go ahead, John. Alex just brought up exactly what was going through my mind, which is the juxtaposition of of asynchronous content versus live content, and what differentiates what what should be live and what should be asynchronous. You know, the reason we're together is to have a conversation. You know, the the idea that, and again, this is the cutting off the end of the pot roast. We all came and delivered our white papers, delivered our talks because we didn't have video to do it. Um, we didn't have that that there, and we weren't able to have that conversation afterwards. Um, we're past that, you know. And so the thing is, is that there's there is no reason why we can't be giving you the video ahead of time because people think the value of going to the event is the videos. It is not. It is the interaction. That is the, you know, content is not king. Content is the honeypot to draw in the community. Community is king. <laughs> you know, like, and so, and, and, and developing that community and developing that interaction is what's important. Uh, next question. Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. I design hybrid event production systems and operate hybrids quite frequently. The in-person participants are quite pleased, as are the online folks. Companies are always trying to convince us that they know the future. Can we look at actual data? Uh, go ahead, Blue. Yeah. Um, so, uh, first off, I, I would I would submit to you that... Um, Events that are having success with hybrid uh, probably are pretty boring to go to in person, generally speaking. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong. Um, what I'll tell you for us, we live in a very small space in the event world um, where the majority of our events are what I term enrollment events. People come to an experience, they're there for three days, and at some point during the three days, there's an invitation to do something more with the primary host. That something more is some sort of thing that usually costs um, exponentially more than the event ticket itself cost to come, right? So you come, you learn a thing, you can go home and you can implement that thing by yourself, or you can enroll in something with the host and go further faster. Generally speaking, those are the events that we host. And I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. The um, th For us, we don't rely on survey data. Um, to determine whether or not our attendees are happy. In fact, I, I don't care about survey data. It means nothing to me. What we care about is do people take the next step? Because if they had a good experience during those three days, they're going to take the next step. And generally speaking, as, as a whole, uh, we used to do virtual events or um, live streams of our in-person events um, for quite some time. We started doing them in like 2015, 16, something like that. And if we, I'll give you rough numbers, if we converted 20% of an audience um, to the next step from our live of in-person event, online, the virtual component converted at about one-fourth of that, so about 5%. When we went to virtual, um, our virtual only events or digital events that we host in Zoom that are very interactive, that I would submit to you are a better experience than the in-person events, and we hear that from our attendees, um, our conversion percentages for the next step are generally very, very similar to what the same event did in person. Um, what's different, of course, for the host is they have way more attendees 
and um, they also have far lower costs. So virtual or digital events tend to be far more profitable for our clients because they're getting very similar conversion numbers. The moment we introduced hybrid, because as you can imagine last year, like the rest of the event industry, we were forced to introduce hybrid in some capacity. The conversion from our hybrid, hybrid events, and we did, I don't know, 10, 15 last year, the conversion from our hybrid events was very similar to that from live streams in the past, about one quarter of the in-person conversion. So for us, that's our data. Um, I And that is consistent every single time we do a, a virtual event um, that or a hybrid event, that's what happens. The moment we go back to either in-person or back to either or just virtual, this takes place. When we do digital first, Conversions look very similar to when we do digital first. Conversions look very similar to in-person and virtual. So from a data perspective, the only data I look at is the revenue generated from the event because that tells me whether or not our attendees were happy. And I can tell you time and time and time and time and time and time again, hybrid doesn't work. And that's database. That's not opinion. Yeah. Um, uh, the data that we had over... Uh, about three years was that um, the chances of someone coming to a hybrid event, this is before COVID, this is the 2015 to 2018 or so, uh, chances of them coming to more than three in a row of this from the same company uh, was was less than 30%. They would just, and they and the worst part was they would actually give us good reviews to get back to the thing. They say, oh, this is a great event, blah, 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 blah. And then we'd call them and ask them what why they didn't come. You know, it was like one of those follow-ups. Hey, we're just seeing how you're doing. Da, 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 da. And they were like, oh, just busy. It's not that they thought it was a bad experience. It's just that it didn't matter. Like, you know, and it didn't, you know, and so when you're, when you feel like you're the back of the row, back row, you may say, well, it's better than not seeing it at all. But over time, it just doesn't become important. And that is devastating. Like, you know, like just to make sure you're clear, people not, people not liking it means they're still passionate about it, but it isn't what they wanted. People just thinking it's not important is a damage to the brand. It's a damage to ever trying to recover. It is literally the worst thing you can possibly do to an audience is have them just not care anymore about what you're doing. And that is the, that's what makes hybrid so dangerous. Uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas asking, what are some recent examples of successful digital first events and what is the largest attendance you know of for a digital event in 2022 and 2023? I don't know what the numbers are. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, I think that blue probably has some in this, in this thing and probably have some of the largest numbers that we've seen so far. Um, Go ahead, John. I I know Eric Worre's events pretty big. They had 60,000 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these, I mean, and we're going to continue to see these. I mean, again, we're at the beginning of this. And so everyone's like looking for data and looking for how many big ones or whatever. But as someone who's worked on hybrid event for a long time, I can just tell you that it doesn't have any legs. Like digital first was going to run this over. Digital first and digital are going to run it over. It is it is like physics. You know, it's not, this isn't like a, you know, this isn't going to go any other direction um, because a lot of us have worked on these for not since COVID, um, but since 2010, 2011, you know. Um, so this is, there's, it's just not going to, it's not going to turn the corner. Um, you know, and, and these, these events, these, online events are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Next question. Next one in from Dean Sir in West Lynn, Oregon. Office Hours is a digital first event and very engaging, but here I am trying to connect and I'm reduced to typing into a queue, looking to see if other up scores agree with my comment, defied connection, etc. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you, you know, we we have a lot of things going on, though. It's a digital event, not a digital first event. Um, we also are, uh, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, as someone who's an attendee at a lot of events, I don't really want to open the mic up all the time because I don't want to um, listen to most people talk, you know, I, and I don't mean that I'm sure that your question will be perfect and it would come in, it would come out nice and clean. It's just not how 99% of the questions pop out on an open mic. Um, you know, most of them come out and they draw, they draw on for five or 10 minutes and then they ask a question that no one cared about. I mean, that's the, that's what you're almost guaranteed of every time you have an open mic. Um, so that's why we, that's why we look at that. Now we also have after hours where we're getting together and people are talking and, and, and we have breakouts and people, you know, build a community here and, and have a lot of other things there. And we're not trying to build, this is a, a broadcast. This is not a digital, if I was doing a digital first event and we are going to do digital first events as office hours this year, there'll be breakout rooms. There'll be things that we're able to hash out. There'll be exp, a virtual expo, not virtual, digital expos where we're actually having people, the, the, the sponsors able to talk to you and you're able to ask questions. So this is, I would not define this as a digital first or even a digital event. This is a different thing. It's a digital event at, at, at some level, but we're also doing it every day with no budget. <laughs> Next question. Next one in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. For digital first events, what tool would it be possible to use to submit video questions from people? Something where a team could weed and crop and trim questions. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, if you're talking about live video, that's a problem because uh, the minute you put people that aren't used to talking on camera, uh, they just start you know, babbling on or they, they just don't know how to pace themselves as opposed to somebody writing a question out and submitting that the way we do right here on office hours. I think it's, uh, it just introduces um, um, another issue that sometimes can be a problem. Go ahead, Blue. Yeah, so this is a fun one because Alex and I differ slightly on this particular topic. Um, <laughs> I have absolutely no problem opening up the mic. Uh, but I what I will say to you is I think taking questions is a learned skill. Most speakers have no idea how to accept questions. They don't know how to set up people asking the questions. Like, this is how you ask a question and then model it for them. And they also don't know how to gently jump in when somebody is going on and on and on, which always does happen. You can't prevent it, right? Because it's just human nature. But if you do it enough, you'll learn how to jump in and say, so tell me your question, right? And then pull the question out of people so that they are having interact an interactive experience. I, we love doing it. I almost every single, well, we have some clients that don't um, because they're not good at asking questions or they're not good at taking them. But I, I, it is a learned skill. And if you're not good at it, then you should definitely not do it. And one of the things that we did a lot, we did this actually uh, with uh, Obama years ago, which is let people tell everyone the events coming up. If there's, if you've got questions, you, you can submit them, and people are able to. People literally just put them up on YouTube, um, but you can give people a place to upload those those, and then you have people on the back end, and then you have a, if you have a flexible playout system, um, you can just be playing those out, and you you cut you head and tail them, and and prep them, and and send them out. Um, and then what's really nice about video questions is that they do feel more personal, but they also, you just throw away the ones that are too long. <laughs> so, so anyway, so if people, don't, if people run on, you have a choice, um, you know, to make that happen. Um, what I will say is that the question velocity is much higher when you're doing text only. And especially in larger groups where, you know, we're, we're a really small group here. But when you end up with um, thousands of people watching and you might get the most the most number of questions that I think Mukana has managed at one time is about 6,200 questions that were submitted in about 20 minutes. Um, in that sense, the questions will be 
impeccable when the audience is able to vote on them and we're able to see them because out of 6,200 questions, I have 12 questions I can ask that in the, in the session and they're going to be the best questions and they're going to be always better than, than what we could do if, if we had 12 individuals stand up. The chances of us getting that level of Q&A is not high, you know, to make that actually happen. So next question. Next question in from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. What can you do to develop a way for groups to attend digital events together and able to converse, et cetera, such as having reserved seatings at a person event? Uh, who can you sit with? So one of the things that we've that we've worked on in a couple of events is people people identifying themselves, and I think that uh, Grant and, and and Blue have done this as well. They identify themselves as a certain you know birds of a feather, or there are certain. We did one with diplomats where we all know that they're in this region and this region and this region, and then we basically we subdivided them so that when they went into breakouts, they could break out by, by their region, you know, if they wanted to be or by their by their affinity group, um, so that they are able to automatically. And that's the kind of tools that Obvio, I think, it has a lot more tools than most other people have um, to to do that, where you can identify who they are and group them based on interest, based on randomness, based on all those other things. Um, to to make that um, to make that actually possible. So there's a lot, and again, this can be done much more effectively than it can be done in a physical world. <laughs> like you know, you can atomize everybody into something. You can atomize them into three different groups at three different breakouts, and having them you know randomized and so on and so forth in a way that's very difficult to do effectively inside of a physical event. Go ahead, Grant. Yeah, I was just going to add that there's a a new feature that Zoom's rolling out that's enabling you can you can do a poll. Uh, and you can poll people uh, and then take the poll results and make breakout rooms based on that, um, which is interesting. So, I mean, you could you could say, what are your interests or or something? What's the what's a topic that you would like a breakout room to be? People submit all of those, and then you can kind of hit a button and and generate all those breakout rooms. So that, that's going to be a cool a cool way of doing it. But I've I've talked about that type of thing before with with. Uh, uh, breakout rooms and being able to do, I call it parking lot talk um, at the end of an event, leaving a bunch of breakout rooms open for people to um, to go and chat with people um, and uh, and they can uh, see different topics and a few random um, rooms as well where they can jump in and, and, uh, and meet people and then leave when they're ready to leave rather than the event just going to a black screen. Yeah. Um, so that's a great way. And remember that that also in 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 this in this environment that um, you can not ha you're not constrained by time and space. You can have an event happen and everyone talks, and now you can have things happen for the next month or two where they're getting together and there's there's different meetings and there's all kinds of digital bits and pieces, and then that ramps up to the next event. And so the the live events are tent poles to an ongoing community discussion that's happening year round, and that's where we're I think we're where we're going. It's not that we won't have we'll have more and more live events that are smaller. So rather than trying to collect 100,000 people, we'll collect 300 or 500 or 5,000 across 10 cities, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if you look at the new IMAX network, there's 210 theaters that can be lit up at any given time all over the world. And you, that's in groups of 300, you know, and so you could literally go out um, to, you know, 60,000 people um, that are all grouped into their own region, um, their own theater, and then go out and have dinners and have get togethers and talks and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, again, these tools are all warming up. Um, and that's what you want to look at is you don't want to look at where the receiver is or was. Um, you want to look at where they're going to be. And as you see all these tools coming out, 
this receiver is going to be where what, in, in squarely in what we're talking about. Uh, next question. Mark Giuliani uh, from Washington, D.C., and here in our panel, can the talk radio format remain an analog broadcast while simulcasting as a digital first event? I think so. Yeah. No, I think talk radio, I think that Q&A has always been a heart of talk radio. And I think that finding ways to give people the ability to, A, ask questions and vote on questions and so on and so forth, which we'll be walk, working together on, um, but B, uh, being able to build Zoom environments where they can actually get together and talk amongst each other. That you could, you could have people listening to talk radio and then jumping into the room that they want to talk you know the 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 you know the pro this or anti that or whatever could go go all into the rooms that they want to talk to talk about it and some some of them could be the fight rooms where they both go into the same location um you know and 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 talk about it but i think that all of those things people would be interested in and i think that i think there's a huge opportunity for radio to I think radio could benefit from this almost better than almost anyone else because they can get to a large audience the key is figuring out that interaction uh next question Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana, asking, would you ever include applause, laughter, any audience sounds in a non-sports event? Good, Mitchell. Um, complicated, because it depends. It depends on the size of the audience that's actually live. Um, I'm inclined to think uh, I wouldn't go out of my way to push it. Um, a little off-camera uh, chatter or response might be okay, but if you have a uh, an event where you've got hundreds of uh, 60,000 people out there and 40 or 50 or 100 are in the audience, it just sort of diminishes the uh, the event and never canned uh, sound effects. It just no. cheapened the whole thing. Go ahead, Bill. Well, sooner or later, there will be a digital first comedy club, I guarantee it. You know, the, the, what, for some reason, what, what popped in my head is having like 50 people, but they're robots in there and they clap when lots of people clap. So if, if everyone starts clapping online, there's like 50 robots like clapping, you know, making noise. I think that'd be uh, really weird, but fun. Uh, go ahead, uh, Blue. Nope, can't hear you, Blue. You're muted. Stoke. Stoke. Sorry. Um, we had um, a client that for a period of time was experiencing experimenting with an app. And what the app did was when, when, a, when an attendee shook it, um, it basically um, played on a, on a host computer, it played a, uh, a reaction. And the more attendees shook the app, the louder the reaction played. Um, it, it was interesting. Um, it didn't really work very well, <laughs> so it stopped being used. Uh, right. But it was it was interesting, and I, I I do think there's a possibility for that. We've also had some active conversations with Zoom about trying to figure out how to um, bring in um, participant audience, uh, par participant audio, um, kind of as a like a secondary inbound stream where it's not the craziness that you get when you try to unmute you know, 200 people in a room that just doesn't work at all. But is there a way to solve that so that we can bring audio or, or um, audience participation or audience audible interaction back in? Um, because I think it, it's one of the things that is, I think, missing for a lot of hosts. Right. Um, you know, the... And the yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's this generation of hosts. It's like, you know, stage, you know, when we went from silent, from silent to talkies, there was a lot of actors that couldn't make it because they couldn't, you know, they didn't have a good voice. You know? mm -hmm. And and there are, you know, when you go, there's some people that can go back and forth from stage to film, but film actors can have 30 people wandering around them, barely paying attention, and they emote out of that. So I think that there's another generation of speaker that's coming too, you know, of host that is used to this digital world and they're going to be the next gen. Um, next question. 
Next question in from Nick Matt in the UK. What about live music events? Having an in-room audience helps make the buzz of the performance uh, that work. We have another live music event planned. I go ahead, Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, that would be an example where a live audience would be because people expect there to be an audience reaction. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things we found is that if we can tie the latency low enough that the audience actually can interact with the with it. So this is not over Zoom or other things, but over fiber. Um, the, the, the band can actually interact with the audience as if they were in the same room. And that can be a virtual room. And what's interesting is if the, if the, if the artist is interacting with even an audience, like if you put an audience like Blue does in another room connected over fiber and they're interacting with the band, what happens is, is that the band now feels that interaction. They feel that, but they're going straight to the camera. How they get to that other audience is through a camera, which makes the online audience feel more connected because they're not, they're being looked straight at and, and interacted with directly. So there's, a, there's, a, there's still a lot of opportunity there. But again, getting the audience out of it, because now the band also can see lots of different virtual locations. They can have in-ear instead of open speakers. You can do a lot of things that are really interesting. Go ahead, Grant. Yeah, I think it's a different event as well. I think uh, if we're talking about all of the audience has a front row seat to that band, mm -hmm. then now it's more of a one-on-one, -on -one, like uh, almost a, um, a, a an intimate uh, relationship that the band has with the audience, and therefore it's not just about the music. Um, it could it could be about an experience that they're having and and more of, of an intimate conversation that's going on with the band, which would be super valuable. Well, and, and you can get a seat, you know, in a theater that's better than anything you could buy. You know, if, if you pay $200 to see Taylor Swift, you're closer to the parking lot than you are to the stage. Um, you know, so, you know, and so the thing is, is that uh, you could be having Taylor Swift right in front of you at full size or, or twice si double size, you know, interacting with you and feeling like she's right in front of you singing, um, as opposed to you're watching on a jumbotron, which itself is pretty small because it's way off in the distance uh, and it's cold and wet. Um, next, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, again, when you're broadcasting to multiple pages on the same platform or even multiple pages on multiple platforms, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, what is the most effective way to pull in comments from these sources for interaction? Uh, you can use, there's a sister app from Makana that does this already. It scrapes all these and pushes them all into a single thing that I call Commenda that, that will do that already. Uh, I believe that StreamYard will do it. Um, Restream will do these things. I highly recommend against it um, because you're, you're fragmenting your audience. And so usually what we want to do is use all those platforms to bring people. Now, again, you're going to see us do exactly the opposite, which is we're going to start streaming to all these platforms. But that's so that we can research quality of service, you know, length of things. We're doing a bunch of research to do that. But, um, but in general, when clients talk to us, I'm like, pick one. And usually I would say pick Zoom if you're going to do something in real time. If you have a lot of motion graphics, pick YouTube um, and I, or, or pick your own CDN. Um, the other ones are pretty uh, either low quality or audience damaging. You know, Facebook is really not, doesn't help you a lot because you bring a lot of people in and then they end up in the, in the stream. The average view time is so low because that's what we're paying attention to is average view time. Uh, average view time is the highest in YouTube for a CDN or a private one like Vimeo or, or Akamai and the, the highest in Zoom um, because they're, um, they're really there and they're, it's much more inter interactive typically. Um, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, asking, are televised sports basically a live digital first event in that the audience has a better than front row view? Uh, 
Yes, I would say that a lot of sports are that way. I, you know, I think that generally you're getting a better view. I would rather watch a baseball game on TV than go in general. Like, you know, like I wouldn't, I, you know, I'm not, you know, and my, my parents have Steeler, Steeler tickets, which they're in the nosebleed off in one corner. Um, you know, I like going there because it's a lot, because of the, the camaraderie of 60,000 people screaming at the top of their lungs. But if it wasn't for that, I, I don't think I would, you know, there is a camaraderie there for the folks there. But we have to remember when we compare sports, a lot of people say, well, football's a, a, a hybrid event, which is true, except that football costs $50 million a show. So if you're going to spend $50 million a show, you can do anything you want. Um, we're talking about reasonable <laughs> things that we can afford. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, how can you build and encourage spontaneous networking and conversation within a digital first framework? Breakouts, you know, like the, the breakouts um, have been really effective, whether they're paired breakouts, small breakouts, small, you know, larger breakouts. I, and I have found those to be really good um, by a variety of different companies of just being able to hang out and have beers together virtually, you know, over through Zoom or whatever. Um, those have worked really well. The other thing to remember is, is that, again, we can be doing events between all these events. We don't all have to have it happen over three days. Um, so the ability to now have all everyone in an environment talking to each other over time is what we found at office hours is very powerful. Um, next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas. Where do you find the industry data about trends in digital events and what are the dominant trends? The dominant trends is they're going to get bigger. <laughs> like, you know, like that's what we're seeing is that, you know, we keep on seeing them get larger and larger and larger. Um, the hard part with digital events right now is that the folks that are giving you the data are largely connected to event events and they're desperately trying to tell you that they're going to keep going. Um, and they're just kind of hanging on to the past until it falls apart. Um, next question. Next question is uh, from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What goes into a Tony Robbins event in terms of planning, execution, and post-event and analytics? And analytics. We're we're pretty far over time, and that's probably a whole second hour. So we're just going to keep keep going on that one. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, could you use delivery vouchers from like Uber Eats and DoorDash to replace the traditional snack table and catered meals in a digital first event? Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Yes, please. <laughs> go ahead and blue. Uh, I was going to say you can, but you don't have to spend that money on something else. Yeah, yeah. And and again, um, what we've done following actually Blue's lead is sending out things that don't need to be, uh, you know, can sit and be shipped out. And there's something about the presentation. The problem you have with DoorDash is that you add a whole other set of logistics for your attendee to deal with um, that they don't necessarily enjoy. Um, whereas if, uh, um, if, they, if they're good at DoorDash, like Mitchell, then they're going to love that. Uh, for me, I get frustrated because they don't show up at the right time. They don't need a bunch of other things. And so um, I think that you're better off sending goods that are packageable, you know, and, and, uh, and we've been really successful with that in the past. And it's been, um, I would highly recommend uh, thinking about it. That was good. That was a good uh, hour and a half. <laughs> that was very the fast. <laughs> yeah, like that, that was a good that was a good one. But I think that, you know, we're going to keep on coming back to this. We are going to have another one in about a month that's going to be digital events and really talk about those as well. But I felt like it was important to distinguish the digital first a reminder um, that it's uh, I posted it, I believe in I'll post it again if I didn't. But I posted, it, I believe, yesterday in the Alex announcements to everyone, the link that you can register if you want to come. Ironically, I'm going to a physical event to talk about digital first events. I know, I see the irony, um, but I'm one little half hour out of uh, an hour of talking about, uh, a day of talking about 2110. So so anyway, so the, um, uh, but that's coming up uh, in two weeks from now. 
Um, the um, uh, another reminder, real quickly, is that Vienna Tran, our own Vienna Tran, is is going to be interviewed by Michael Krasny in about ninety minutes. I have to rush down there and make sure everything gets set up for her. Um, but she's going to be talking uh, with Michael Krasny. So if you're part of that uh, part of the Gray Matter uh, show group, I would highly recommend jumping in there and and uh, and uh, asking questions and be part of that conversation. Uh, I want to thank uh, the, the the panelists for uh, a great conversation. It's really, really good to have all, all of you here. Um, and I uh, can't do this without you. And it's, you know, this is the kind of conversation where we just really need to have the folks that are working on it, talking about it. Um, and then um, uh, I also want to thank, of course, the great questions and comments from the from the uh, from our, our producers. Uh, it was really, really well done. And uh, as always, we have an incredible crew on the back end uh, building new new features, running daily shows, figuring out what we're going to do in the content, you know, doing all those things. And I just want to really um, thank everyone. We really appreciate you and all the work that you do. And um, we traveled 134,000 miles. So we went 1K today, um, uh, 216,000 kilometers. Most importantly, 1.217 billion bananas for scale. So um, so we, we went into the billion mark for bananas, uh, which is very important to us um, anyway. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. I can't remember the last time we went to a billion bananas. I think it's the first billion bananas since we started measuring by bananas. That's a lot of slippage. So much potassium. It's like, you know. I know what Mark is going to be doing. What am I going to be doing? You're going to be planning more digital events. Oh, yes, we have one coming up in February. I'll talk to you about it in after hours sometime. Cool.